This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Turn to page 394. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I'm here with my uh, co-host, James Hamrick, again. Hey, what's going on? Uh, not much. Uh, today we're talking about the third film in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, and we're talking about it for the second time, because we recorded this last week, uh, but um, things happened and uh, technical problems... And we don't have that recording, <laughs> so we got to do it again. Uh, but this one's going to be better, so even though you guys had to wait a week, you're better off for it, so deal. Um, <laughs> but before we talk about Prisoner of Azkaban, I want to ask you guys, uh, if you enjoy this show, to please take a moment to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Make no mention of the week-long delay. Um, and make, just make sure it's a five-star review. Um, we would very much appreciate it. And I'd like us on Facebook to keep up to date with all the latest episodes and give feedback that can end up on the show. And speaking of said feedback, I asked uh, we asked on Facebook and Twitter what people thought about this film, and we got a lot for this one, so there's a lot of thoughts on it. Um, Grace said, I love when they time travel and watch themselves save that hippogriff, as do I. Uh, Stone said, it transitions the series perfectly from the sort of dark but mostly kid-centric tone of the first two had to the very dark, mysterious, and tragedy-filled tone of the rest of the series, while still being filled with whimsy and fantastic world-building. There are so many subtle details and excellent filmmaking that Alfonso Cuaron brought to this one. Joel said, it's the third best, but I do love it. Uh, Scott said, it was just fine to me. Good shift of tone for the series, but not near my favorite. I think it's overrated. I watched them all for the first time this year. I'm sure if I saw them when they came out, I might have loved this more. But a lot of, or, but a lot was predictable and tropey. Uh, <laughs> Anthony said... It's my least favorite film in the entire series. Enjoy it, but Def the weakest, in my opinion. Just, well, your opinion's bad, okay? There's no world in which that makes sense. Uh, Blake said, I think the sheer directorial and cinematic talent on display from Puron places this at the top for me. The changes he made from the prior films elevate the series, in my opinion. David said, it's tied for number one for me. Uh, Michael Hoover from A Certain Point of View podcast said, this and Order of the Phoenix are tied for number one for me. I love the direction, the shift in tone, the mystery, and the time travel elements. It all just works for me. Matthew said, For me, this was when I really started to love the series. Not that the first two weren't good, but this one blew them out of the water with its darker tone, as well as beginning to cover more mature themes with the, with the franchise. While I agree it's the best in the series, I can kind of understand why that can be disputed, as a couple of the later films are quote-unquote fire as the kids say uh curry said it's smack dab in the middle of my rankings it's a great movie and an even better book but it leaves far too many details out while glossing over the rest it's definitely got the strongest direction but i do think it's a tiny bit overrated it used to be a lot higher but it fell on this last rewatch rachel said it's death my favorite uh logan said maybe my second or third favorite movie of the series really really strong it was my favorite of the books until the seventh came out although my personal rankings have reshuffled a bit uh since then it's quite strong though Hillary said, it's my favorite of the entire series, book and movie. And then on Twitter, Philip Heard at Heard03 said, I reserved the best for Half-Blood Prince, but it is definitely a worthy favorite. I really enjoy this film. I think the first I saw in the theater. Cool how the series is established at this point was still so much mystery it had to be solved. Perhaps the most rewatchable of the movies. 
And before we move into the behind the scenes, I probably should mention there is a lot of remodeling going down at the house I live at. So if you hear banging or saws or some kind of noise, uh, that's what that is. And I apologize. So moving into the behind the scenes discussion on this film, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban was published in the UK on July 8th of 1999, and it made its way over to the US two months later in, on September 8th. For the UK, that would have been a year after Chamber of Secrets, uh, but due to the year-long gap between UK and U between UK and US publications for the first two books, uh, Americans got Prisoner of Azkaban only three months after Chamber of Secrets, which would have been, made that a very nice year. Then moving on to the adaptation, uh, there seems to be some kind of initial expectation that uh, Chris Columbus would continue directing the series after the first two, um, but the grueling schedule was taking uh, was taking him away from his family, and he said he did. So he opted out of directing the th third film, but stayed on as, as a producer. You know, he he kind of always put his reasoning as he wanted to be able to have dinner with his kids on weekdays, and that wouldn't have been possible for another you know two years if he directed the third film. A lot of uh, hot directors at the time uh, were in the running to make this film. Uh, Guillermo del Toro was offered uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, but he turned it down, later saying, They came to me once for the third one. I've read them all, and when I read the books before the movies were done, I, I always pictured Charles Dickens. They were very Dickensian. The situation of Harry, Harry Potter reminded me a lot of Pip from Great Expectations. I saw them as deeper, more creaky, more corroded. Then uh, the films were textured very differently when the first two movies came out. They were so bright and happy and full of life that I wasn't interested. Um, I, I feel like he he must have thought that he would not have been allowed to change it That's the thing. as much as Coron did. There's uh, Despite the fact that both he and Coron are very distinct from each other, there's still a little, there's some crossover in aesthetic, at least between Coron here and Del Toro. Yeah, because Coron doesn't work in fantasy that much. Um so, but then, like his his fantasy does look a, a good bit like what um what uh, Del Toro yeah. does. Others were M Night Shyamalan, who had also been considered for Sorcerer's Stone, but he was already working on the village. Which we defend. <laughs> yes, I, I, I cannot even imagine what his Harry Potter would look like. I need I need someone to make one of those videos. <laughs> you know, like this this director's version of this thing. Uh, <laughs> it would be strange. Um, well, I guess we kind of do have with the last Airbender, so Ooh. yeah. Less less said about that, the better. Mark Forster also turned it down uh, because he didn't want to make another film with child actors, as he had just done Finding Neverland. Um, I think he would have done pretty well. Uh, there's he, he did the Disney film Christopher Robin like two years ago, and no one no one remembers that film, but it, it was very sweet and it, you know, had had a bit of a fantasy edge to it. So I think he would have done fairly well. Um, Kenneth Branagh was also briefly considered. I'm still very sad that he did not get a chance to direct a Harry Imagine Potter Imagine if film. we could just slot old Kenneth in for a Goblet of Fire. Oh, just any old director, anyone. <laughs> him with, the, him with all there. those pent-up emotions, that would have been dope. Yeah. Um, but the job ultimately went to Mexican director uh, Alfonso Cuaron. Um, Rowling had been a big fan of his uh, indie film, uh, Itumama Tambian, um, which... If you're looking for Harry Potter, probably don't go there. Uh, but he had also he also had uh, experience adapting children's literature with his first English language film, 1995's *A Little Princess*, which shares a lot of DNA with Harry Potter. You know, it's about an orphan at a at, you know, at a boarding school. There's there's a bit of you know magical realism going on. There's this you know it's very different, obviously, if you read it, if you looked at either story. But there's definitely definitely some crossover. They're both in that you know British boarding school adventure genre. You should check that out, James. It's a really, really sweet little movie. I want to. He's he's among the many directors whose like 
filmography, I, I want to do like a full watch through. But, but but when he was initially offered the job, he wasn't at all interested. Um, he wasn't very familiar with the books and he just thought they were stupid, you know, nonsense. Um, but then he had a conversation with his friend and fellow Mexican filmmaker, uh, the aforementioned Guillermo del Toro. And the, this and this story gives us one of my favorite anecdotes from the makings of this series. Um, he's told the story many times, but this one is quoting uh, from an interview with uh, Entertainment Weekly. He said, I talk with Guillermo, uh, as I always do, and he says, what's happening? Any projects going on? And I said, I'm going for Harry Potter. Can you believe it? And I even made fun of it. I hadn't read the books or seen the films. <laughs> and then he looks upset with me. He calls me Flacco, which means skinny in English. He says, effing skinny, have you read the books? I said, no, I haven't read the books. He says, effing skinny, you're such an effing arrogant bastard. You're going right now to the effing bookshop <laughs> to get the books, and you're going to read them and call me right away. Uh, <laughs> Which is just, it's amazing. I love Del Toro. I, these, both of these guys give amazing interviews. They're so much fun to watch. But also, like, that's what I sound like when someone like insults you know, a film or series or genre I like. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, and that wasn't the only uh, great piece of advice uh, Del Toro gave Coran. Uh, from a different interview, um, Coran said, uh, he said to me, don't try to do your own thing. Just serve the material. And if you serve the material you may make your most personal film. Um, and I, that's that's such a wonderful philosophy. I think hearing filmmakers talking, like certain more auteurish filmmakers talking about how they don't want to go into genre because you know, they, they, you know, they don't want to sacrifice the freedom. And there, there's, a, there's a true element to, to that. But I think when you take a filmmaker and slot them into a genre, where, where the, into a, you know, a, fa a franchise film, with good producers who are, you know, determined to make good films, um, you uh, you do often get, you still can get very highly distinctive films within franchises. And I'm always much more impressed when a filmmaker, as he says, you know, like surrenders to the material, focuses it on, like, what is this story saying? And you, you begin a film like this that is, I, I believe, very true to the source material and very interested in what the book's about, what the characters are do going through, but is still to its bones an Alfonso Cuaron film. And... I, 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 I have so much more respect for a filmmaker who does that than one that comes in and says like, okay, what can I do with this series? Just, I'm going to ignore all the previous stuff. I'm going to do my own thing. There is a bit of that happening here, but, um, I, I could throw, I'd say maybe something like a, a Logan where he just kind of ignores everything that came before. It, it just, it, it's a great film, but the fact that it doesn't reckon with all the previous films does bring it down in my opinion, where I, I just have more respect for a filmmaker who's going to try and, try and bring them, you know, bring whatever they can out of the series rather than putting, forcing themselves into it. Yeah. Controversially, Logan and The Last Jedi have been my go-to in terms of, you know, highly acclaimed directors and their approach to franchise storytelling. I love both films, but like you said, Logan is, ah, I, I am, I shouldn't be subservient to anything. I'm going to tell my story. Whereas, I think Ryan Johnson very much. No, Ryan submitted. Johnson came in and said, F George Lucas, <laughs> F Star Wars. I'm going to burn it to the ground. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's an exact quote. Probably somewhere. No, like I, he was, to me, he buried himself underneath everything that that series was and wouldn't, you know, it's, this is, you know, it, it, that film was entirely subservient to the themes and the characters where they were at that point. And I feel the same largely here where it's, you know, I mean, I, I will quibble about, you know, changing the geography in this just because I'm a stickler for continuity. But in terms of like, 
I don't know, th- things that are more important than the, hey, that hut wasn't over there before. Most of that is pretty, pretty much adhered to. And it's like even beyond just adhering to the previous films, having just read the book, um, you know, pretty recently, I, I feel like he, he is very much putting himself at the feet of, of the source material. Yeah, so uh, definitely uh, thanking uh, uh, Del Toro for abusing Coronado to taking this job and also giving him good advice. Uh, also for not taking the movie, because I think he would, he, even though he says that, I feel like he's a filmmaker that would definitely try to force his point of view and personality. Um, and it would be, it would be different if he did it. Uh, I wonder what it would be like, though. Like, I, we did talk about this a little bit the last, the first time we recorded this episode, but there, there is something very distinct about uh, like, like, Mexican like, like, horror. Reading what he says about what he was going to do with Harry Potter, and I'm like, or not Harry Potter, uh, The Hobbit. And I'm like, <laughs> I love you, man, but I, I, I don't like any of the words you're saying. So I'm I, actually very interested in that, in the alt reality where that happened, because I think it would have been cool to just been weird. But yeah, which would have been make it, which would have made it weird being forced into Peter Jackson's universe. And just that's a whole other conversation that we <laughs> probably I think we had like three or four years ago. When we talked about the Hobbit films. Yeah. So and once again, Steve Clovis returned to write the film. Um, and with this, it was with this production that they switched over from, from a one year turnover rate for each film to an 18 month gap to give the filmmakers more time, um, which I'm sure they definitely appreciated. As with Chamber of Secrets, uh, pre-production began up. Uh, long before the previous film had been released, uh, which is pretty common with uh, big franchises. Uh, Quorum was uh, announced as a director five months before uh, Chamber of Secrets even came out. He probably would have been on longer in pre-production even before that. And another quote I found uh, kind of building off the Del Toro one, he said, it was an interesting process. It was the opposite of any other creative process I've been in. It was not about, this is what I want to do. It was about, this is what the source material needs. It was not about what I'm going to make different for number one and two. It was about what was in the material, which we, we kind of talked about that already. But uh, you know, he's, he's definitely bringing, he's definitely taking um, Del Toro's advice. And this brings me to my second favorite anecdote from the making of the series. Uh, so when Quorum came on, uh, he assigned each of the three main actors, uh, Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, and Rupert Grint, uh, to write an essay about their characters to help them get into the roles. Uh, and the story goes that uh, Daniel Radcliffe handed in a single-page essay. Emma Watson handed in... Uh, supposedly like over a dozen pages and uh, Rupert Grint uh, never did it. And then when Corona went, you know, went after and asked him, he's like, where's my essay? Uh, he said, oh, and uh, Rupert said, well, Ron would never have written it. Uh, to which Corona replied, well, I guess you understand your character then. So uh, working with production designer, Stuart Craig and costume designer, uh, Janny Tamim, uh, Corona attempted to kind of revamp the visual aesthetic of the wizarding world. They did things like moving, moving the production to Scotland to take advantage of you know, the, the mountainous wooded terrain, the, the big locks and all that. Um, they also, you know, did things like allowing the children, the kids to essentially dress themselves in the school uniforms, uh, to personalize that, to personalize their looks as well as, you know, dress in muggle clothes and just overall giving it a much more grounded gritty, but also like, the, I feel like the production design is more, is much more fantastical than even the first two films. Well, also the, the the filmmaking style and the costume is going a bit more grungy, so it's an interesting mix of realism and, and magical kind of it, and more and more fantastical. It wasn't until this rewatch that I noticed that part of what makes it look different is just the regular clothing. 
I'm like, oh, wait a second. They aren't running around always in, in robes and stuff. Like it, it, now after I noticed that, I'm like, it, is it weird that Hermione's running around with like the pink hoodie and stuff? Like it, huh, never, never would have really like registered before. But yeah, everybody, to me, everybody, like with the, especially Harry, with the the clothes he wears and the open collar and the, the loose time, like everybody's dressing like prog British rockers in this or something. But <laughs> it's a fun style. For the film's casting, uh, as with uh, Chamber of Secrets, the bulk of the cast is, is a returning cast. So I'll just go over some of the highlights. Um, probably most notably, uh, we have Michael Gambon now cast as Albus Dumbledore. Obviously, actor Richard Harris had played him in the previous two films. However, he had died of Hodgkin's disease on October 25th, 2002 which was three weeks before uh, Chamber of Secrets release, actually. Four months after Harris's death, Curon had chosen Gambon as his replacement. Uh, and in interviews, he was asked, you know, if he wanted, if, if he intended to kind of copy or, or how it felt, you know, taking on the role portrayed, like that was really beloved, portrayed by such a prestigious actor. Um, and he said he was unconcerned with bettering it or, or even trying to copy it. And he wanted to give his own interpretation instead. Uh, though he did say he put on a little bit of a, a slight Irish accent, just kind of as an homage to Harris. Um, there were rumors that Ian McKellen was offered the role, uh, and he's responded to this not necessarily like not in a way that either confirms or denies the rumors themselves, but just responds to the idea of of him in the role. Uh, he said he said that it would have been inappropriate to take Harris's role, uh, as Harris had been quoted to have said McKellen was a dreadful actor. <laughs> For shame. Yeah. Um, he also said, though, that even had that not been the case, he wouldn't have taken the role just because he feels like the role is so similar to um, a character like Gandalf and, and just everything he had just been doing and this was another big time commitment he didn't want to commit so much of his time to um, another wizard in a well-established fantasy series he would have killed it though absolutely. oh absolutely like he i mean he would kill every, anything but like he the thing uh, you get so much of the two things that make up dumbledore in his gandalf i feel like which is just this perfect grandfatherly kindness like i just think of his that twinkle his, in his eye that, tw- that his conversation with Pippin, you know, about the white shores and return of the King, as well as just like the scary guy who, you know, is going to be able to wreck shop. Uh, mm-hmm. a- another little thing to note about the casting is I don't think this was ever anything really being considered. This is more of just coming from Harris's family. Um, Richard Harris's family had expressed an interest in seeing uh, Richard Harris's own close friend, Peter O'Toole, chosen as his replacement. And I, I don't think that that ended up being anything that was pursued, but but they had spoken in, in interviews or had given statements about, you know, wanting to see something like that. Uh, for other new characters, though, we have uh, Sirius Black played by Gary Oldman. Uh, and he actually, he had said in an interview that he accepted this part because he needed money at the time as he had not taken on any major work. In the past few years, because he decided he wanted to spend more time with his children. Um, but he said he was actually surprised by how difficult it was to pull off. Uh, and he compared the role to, you know, the the same kind of 
effort it takes to pull off like Shakespearean dialogue, which makes sense given, <laughs> given like the final act of the film. Uh, we have Timothy Spall as Peter Pettigrew. Uh, David Thewlis comes on as Remus Lupin. Uh, we had talked about uh, this in the Sorcerer's Stone episode, but he had actually uh, auditioned for the role of Quirrell, but didn't get it. Uh, though he was Curon's first choice for the role of Lupin. Uh, he actually accepted after giving advice from Ian Hart, who played Quirrell in Sorcerer's Stone, and told him that uh, Lupin was the best part in the book. Uh, Phyllis said he had seen the first two films and had only read part of the first book, Though uh, after getting the part, he he read the series up to the third. Uh, and then we've got a, a lot of other new uh, additions. We have Pam Ferris as Aunt Marge, Vernon's sister. Lee Ingleby as Stan Shunpike. Uh, Jim Tavare as Tom, innkeeper of the Leaky Cauldron. Uh, he actually replaces Derek Deadman from the first film. Uh, Don French also replaces um, Elizabeth Spriggs from the, the previous film as the Fat Lady. Julie Christie plays Madame Rosmerda. Uh, and it, this is not necessarily a, it's its, its own weird category. Uh, Warwick Davis appears as the conductor of, Hog, of the Hogwarts choir. Uh, and the reason the role was offered to him, it was offered to him by uh, producer David Heyman. And it was because Phileas Flitwick actually wasn't in uh, the shooting script. He's, he's not in the film, uh, but they still wanted to keep uh, Davis on board. And so he said, well, you'll just play the choir master. Uh, and this is just speculation on my part, but I'm assuming he, he just enjoyed not having to go through all of the heavy prosthetics uh, to play Flitwick. And so the appearance of the choir conductor in this film ends up becoming the character of Flitwick for the franchise going on. So technically, so weird. <laughs> yeah, in this film, he was not envisioned as Flitwick, but then Goblet of Fire came out and they said, no, no, that was Flitwick. He just looks different. Okay. And now that's him from now on. I feel like this was something that actually was decided on mid-production because you see him around the castle hanging out with the other teachers at various points in the film, um, like ap even after the choir. I bet they wouldn't have just were like, hey, just, just hang out, you know? Just um, does he have any other roles in makeup, like or in costume, like as, as other creatures? Can't recall I can't believe any, so. Any weird creatures one. in this film. Maybe he plays like the Monsters Book of Monsters or something. Um, <laughs> so filming began in uh, February of 2004. It was once again shot at the Leaves and Studios in England for the interiors. Um, Coron's uh, go-to DP, Emmanuel Luzbeski, was unavailable, uh, presumably shooting uh, another adaptation of a popular children's book, A Series of Unfortunate Events, uh, which would have been very much trying to ride off of the success of the Harry Potter films at the time. Um... So Michael Saracen uh, served as cinematographer. Uh, he's mainly worked with directors like Alan Parker or, Hill or Harold Becker. Um, recently, he's done films like Matt Reeves' Two Planet of the Apes films, very good-looking movies, uh, and Andy Serkis' Mowgli Legend of the Jungle, which um, everyone definitely saw. All the interiors... Uh, sorry, I said that. Um, and while the interiors were shot at the Leavesden Studios, uh, for the exteriors, as I mentioned earlier, they moved the entire production up to Scotland, um to get you know the rugged mountainous terrain they opted for a much darker visual palette than the first two films uh and Koran implied his signature wide angle lenses and very long takes uh throughout this also would have been the first film um that was a that was a digitally graded rather than you know the, the traditional the you know chemical grading process that they do for film previously 
this one they actually went in and and you could definitely tell <laughs> this is yeah, has a very strong kind of early 2000s you know, high contrast, gray, very, very grayish look to it. So for the film score, uh, this was the third and final film scored by John Williams, which actually surprised me because of how different this movie sounds musically. I had assumed this is where he dropped off. Yeah, if you're listening to the, like, if you're listening to the track, the score side by side, it definitely sounds like a different composer. But listening, like, listening to the score on its own is still definitely John Williams. Uh, yeah, and that, that's what I found out, like, in the movie, I'm like, oh yeah, that's very different. And then there are just extended moments in the in several tracks where I'm like, man, I'm like in the prequels right now. Mm-hmm. It's you so definitely hear his, his sound, yeah. Um, but the reason for that difference in sound, though, uh, it was actually because Huron wanted to take the score from a, a different approach. Um, and and what I really like about this is it, it feels like this is a genuine collaboration because, like we said, you you definitely hear the signature Williams sound, but he's very much subservient to this idea that Curon as the director has, which is, you know, we, it's more Gothic fantasy. It's, it's less, I don't know, like, like we said before, I think the, the previous films really do just kind of go back and forth between Hedwig's theme and Harry's wondrous world, like you said, and this, this does go in new directions. Uh, and I really, really like it. Uh, also, um, of the new themes, we have uh, Double Trouble written uh, during production or during the production of a children's choir to perform in Hogwarts Great Hall. And the, the lyrics from Macbeth. Yeah, yeah, um, it's 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 taking uh, taking the lyrics from the, the Macbeth scene. And I really love that. Uh, for the film's release, uh, it held its premiere actually in New York. So we actually got to have its premiere over here instead of London. Uh, at Radio City Music Hall on uh, May 23rd, 2004. Uh, and then it, ha- it had its London premiere at Leicester Square on May 30th, 2004. Uh, and then it was had a staggered release after that from May 31st to June 1st. The film then opened uh, or had its wide release kind of staggered from May 31st to June 4th. All right, so um, like, what's your history with this film and uh, what do you think of it now? Well, so I think I had made brief mention of this in previous episodes. You know, I grew up with the first two, seen them a lot. Uh, I watched this one several years ago. I came to my friend's house. We were kind of having a get together and this had been on for five minutes. So I'd missed like the first five or so minutes, but it's what was decided was being done. So I just, I kind of, I showed up to the living room, sat down and and kept watching. And I really, really loved it. Uh, Like even despite the fact that the first two are kind of ingrained in my childhood, I was like, oh no, this is, this is the best of the three. Um, but I never watched it again for years and years. Uh, and then it was actually reading through the entire Harry Potter series. As soon as I was done with that, I then rewatched all of the Harry Potter movies. And I, my memory of the film was mostly isolated to just a, like different moments and images. And just the fact that I, I remembered loving it. And that held true. It ended like when the series was done, there's one other in the series that comes pretty close to this, but it ended up still being my favorite of, of the eight films. Uh, and, and then rewatching it again for this episode, I'm like, nah, this is, this is a great movie. <laughs> you know, this is, there's, there's real, no, there really no, I don't know, despite maybe the disagreements we see in the comments to me, it's like, it's, yeah, this is, this is the best one. Yeah, uh, so I watched this almost immediately after reading the book. It probably would have been 1920-ish. 
And I loved it when I first saw it, and I've watched it many times since then, and I've always loved it. So, yeah, I like it. Uh, <laughs> it's not, not not a lot of evolution in that in that <laughs> regard. So, the the, 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 defi- the defining feature in this film is just all the, the wonderful things that Alfonso Cuaron brings to it. Let's, kind of, let's, let's just, just talk about... So, so what, like, what do you think like, he brings to this film as a director, James? that you almost give like a, a comprehensive answer that you because it's it's not a oh it's this one thing and it feels like it's because he has such an incredible vision that when you talk about what he brings you basically have to talk about every aspect of the film because you know he he william scored the film but he it was him who you know initiated this this change of sound and you you think of the production design and he brought a new a new look a new visual to it and you think of uh just tone and it's it's very the mood of this film feels so much different from everything before so there's continuity between all of this between the the sound and the feeling and the images and everything but it is it's very far-reaching uh so it's just a a focus on emotion over plot yeah exactly this this movie and it's it's partly because of the source material you know there's uh, Azkaban as a book is is less plot driven as as the first two maybe uh, certainly less than Chamber of Secrets, and and you get that here as well where it is. I'm sure we'll talk about it more later, but it feels like the move the movie doesn't for the for a long time doesn't necessarily have a singular plot. It's just all of these different subplots that kind of converge in a way you're like oh this has kind of been what the movie's about this whole time. Um, but yeah, like it's it's there's an emphasis on tone and feelings and um and a, and a mood and and a little bit of you know paranoia and stuff. But it's it's way less plot driven. Um, but I guess j- just to pick a, a couple things, like I I just want to talk about the what he does with the camera um, a lot. This <laughs> yes, there is a lot. Uh, like we said before part of the reason why I feel like the previous two films slot so well with a lot of eighties adventure films is because you, it, there's a similar sense with the camera where, you know, you've got these, these images where, you know, because a lot of this had to be very well staged because, you know, kids need their marks. You, you go here, you get there. You, you can't really just say, well, we'll, we'll see what inspires them on the day. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's very rehearsed. And so you, you have the camera. That's here. a good question. Actually, I would be curious as to how much, because the camera moves are so enormous and you've got to have this massive crane coming around. I wonder how much he actually enforces like specific staging and choreography like, because the scenes, they feel very free and loose, yeah. but I think that's an illusion. I, th- I think he probably has to, like, everybody has to get their mark like a freaking dance. Yeah. And, and I think uh, a benefit he has now is actors who can, like, perform while keeping up with that. Whereas, you know, in the first ones, a lot of the film outside of the action is it's people standing around and looking directly at each other and talking directly at each other. And, you know, it, it's not bad filmmaking, filmmaking at all, but the, there's a, a just something kind of static about it. Like, you know, you think about the the first flight and it's it, that scene is made up in, in Sorcerer's Stone of just like a camera here and then a camera here and then a camera. Whereas with this, he's just he's 
he lets the camera move around the scene a lot. And he, he, I don't know, he loves to float around in this movie. And, and so that, that's one thing that I think really changes, even from the opening scene. I remember watching it, uh, whenever I like right after I finished the books and, you know, going Sorcerer's Stone Chamber of Secrets and getting here, we're like, just the shot of like the door opening and everybody coming inside out from the rain. And like, it's this, it's this handheld white, like, it's like, this is immediately so different. Uh, but the it looks amazing. The interesting thing about him is he's not constrained by like what the, like, like, Mo, mo, I say like 95% of films, they keep the camera on a level that can, like, can be physically like on like the level of the human height, like usually around eye level, like around there. But he just like, he just put the camera anywhere, like way up in the corner of the ceiling and sweep it down, you know, over and around. Like there's no, there's no constraint that you see in most films with what he does with the camera. It's like, if he imagines it, he will do it. Um, and like it's just the ca- the the motion that he's doing through windows and you know, around and through mirrors and over people and zooming in like it's just he's doing everything and, and the camera is just in constant motion giving us that feeling of there's a feeling of energy in this film that he brings um which is vital because he has he covers so much ground in this movie so there's a constant feeling of forward momentum um, be it through the camera work or the, or the editing. Like he's known for his camera work. He's known for his long takes, but there were several sequences in here. I noticed that I rely entirely on editing, like um, Aunt Marge blowing up or the night bus where there's not a lot of camera moving. It's a lot of, it's often just a lot of like precisely timed cuts, creating a very frantic energy entirely through editing. So he's not just relying entirely on camera. Movie. He's using all, all kinds of different cinematic tricks to give that energy Regardless you know, of whether he or not he's swooping the camera around. Yeah, when it comes to the night bus, I can't imagine how you can't shoot that scene and just like edit it every few seconds with that music. Like <laughs> whenever you've got that score, you've got to be like cutting from all sorts of crazy angles just to keep up. Uh, but man, speaking of lack of constraint, one thing that does not constrain his camera is windows. And <laughs> we are all the better for that. It happens so often in this, and every single time I'm like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, the, the way the camera passes through panes of glass and windows and mirrors and stuff. It's the, so... the mirrors in the Bogart scene where it comes out of the mirror and then swoops back in. It's so cool. Like, I, but man, whenever, again, when I rewatched that, I did not remember that moment happening. And so when it happens and like you're moving into it. And then when it turns around and you realize like, Oh wait, we're in the space. Like I got goosebumps. Like this is, it's such a little thing, but it's so cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then this is way less like obviously cool, but for some reason it's one of my favorite like visual moments in the whole film. It's after he's, he wakes up in the leaky cauldron and the camera is it's looking down, like it's all gray and gross and rainy outside. And it's looking down from the second floor, like, at people coming in and out and then it looks up and pulls back and passes through the window over Harry's shoulder. And as it does that, a train, which is like on the second floor goes by. And so like it passes through the window right as the camera just like starts to really shake because of the movement of the train. And it's and like, as it shakes, Harry turns around and like kind of looks over, looks towards the camera and over it. That whole, that little 10 second thing is just like, 
cinema. It, it just looks so cool. And as you're saying that, I'm hearing the window panes rattle from the train coming by. Like, the, another big thing he brought is the sound design, which is which is very good in the first two films. But this is this just very comprehensive world building happening in the sound design, like like at the Leaky Cauldron, like where you hear the window panes rattling yeah. as this train comes by. Um, and that, that brings us into like his use of magic. Um, is very different from how Columbus used it. Columbus was just like, you know, very loudly, you know, elaborately point your wand and clearly enunciate the spell. And then like five seconds later, there's a really weird delay there. But, you know, the loud, there's a loud whoosh and this big light flies out. And like it, it's the reaction is enormous. Like whatever happens, like if the person is thrown like 20 feet and it's, it's, it's all big and loud and, and brash. Um, Crone brought a much subtler, like like almost audio based kind of magic. Where, like, I don't, I don't. We don't see all that much wand magic. It's mainly kind of towards the end. Like, I, I think you have like all the the the, the, the three or four different expelliarmuses that happen in the shrieking shack, where it's just like it's the tiny, it's a little light at the end of the wand, and like this little kind of whooshing sound. Um and the, and it, it 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 weirdly feels even more powerful. The, the way I think of it from that sound is almost like like they're creating like a, a small crack in reality and allowing this pent up force of magic to kind of just like like just this tiny bit to come in to do their bidding and it closes off again. Like they're like they're, they're, it's it makes it feel so deep and primal and powerful. Like there is this endless power that they're kind of holding back and just letting out little bursts with each spell. Um, but it's, it's always just very quiet, like this kind of blowing sound or or just a little kind of whistle hum thing that's happening with uh, Loomis as they do it. Um, I don't know, it, it's so much more subtle, so much more quiet, but for me it feels just much more powerful and just deep and innate to this world. Yeah, there's something elemental about it. Where it's like it, it, like what you're saying, it is. You get the sense that you're just surrounded by this very long rooted. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm projecting just just because it, it's cool to me. But it, it does feel like you almost get a sense of history with the magic. Like it's just like what you're saying. Like it, it's something that's just ingrained in this world that we're kind of letting loose in these moments with these words. Uh, but yeah, like it, it feels. It's only a little bit of light and a little sound, and yet to see what that does, you're like, man, this is this is some deep stuff. Mm-hmm. And th- this is an interesting question um, because I, I feel like there's a very there's a sense of we talked about earlier about how the Quran kind of, even though he was determined to 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 stay true to the book, there is a feeling that he's kind of just doing what he wants. So th- there's a shrunken head in the night bus that speaks you know, with a Jamaican accent, and you know. Tom the barkeeper is a hunch is a goofy hunchback, and the maid opens the door and something roars at her. Like and it, like there's there's a, a, a wildness and like and Harry and Ron and Seamus sit around eating candy that makes steam come out of their ears. Like there's a he's just like it's like I want to just do these weird things and put them in, and I know that that's something that turns off a lot of book fans and fans of the previous two films because it is so different, and it, it's interesting because that's. That's also my complaint with Goblet of Fire. You know, fast forwarding a little bit, 
is that it feels like Mike Newell just like, let's just do whatever sounds fun. And it's like, like what makes this film different with the wildness and kind of freedom that Koran approaches this world, just doing whatever he wants? Why does it work here, at least for us? You know, a lot, I know a lot of people like Goblet of Fire, but at least for us, why does it work here and feel just so random and jarring in Goblet of Fire? Uh, this sounds harsher than I, te- than I want it to sound, but I think confidence has to be met with competence. <laughs> and it's not that Newell is an incompetent director, but it's like, if you're going to be crazy and wild like this, you have to have those two things. You have to have genuine confidence in these crazy decisions and oftentimes superfluous decisions. Like you're, you may, like, if this doesn't work, you're unnecessarily straddling the film with something it didn't need. And so you have to have confidence to just put it out there and realize that vision. But you also just have to, you have to be somebody with an incredible vision. And I I think. (laughs) You have to be a good filmmaker. (laughs) Basically is the long, (laughs) or is the short answer. Yes. I feel like he has all of these very strong visual ideas, but he also has just, I mean, he's a master filmmaker. You know, he's, we don't know how far through his filmography, he may have several films later down the line, but he's, I mean, we all, we all agree at this point, like Quran is a master. Uh, and we get to see that, like, he doesn't stop being that whenever he does these genre movies. And so this, all of these crazy out there, at least most of these crazy out there decisions, they work because he's got a cool vision uh, and he's got incredible talent behind it. And then I think lastly, the issue for us with Goblet of Fire is there's a, you really do get a sense of like, it's not only is it Newell wanting to do anything, but it's like him being like, hey, does anybody else have any wacky ideas? Like it it felt almost like anybody could show up and just say something weird and you'd be like, all right, yeah, let's do that. Whereas despite the fact that there's this wild craziness to this movie, there's a consistent wild craziness to it like there mm-hmm. feels to be some level of continuity behind all of these crazy decisions he's doing yeah it's going back to del toro uh that quote where like it's he had where he it felt like he you know he had a very distinct vision of this world when he wrote the book when he read the books and i think that's what quran is doing he like this is the world he saw when he wrote read the books and he is just taking that and putting it on the screen for me, that's why it also, it doesn't feel, you know, incompatible with the, with the books um, because we all kind of import our own ideas before they're realized in a film as to, you know, authors describe things in great t- detail often as, as was done here, but there's always some level of room for your own imagination. And, and despite the fact that, you know, the book may not have said, Oh, and then the, when you open this door, a monster roars at you like to, on paper that feels like it's outside of like monsters Inc to me. Um, <laughs> but I think a reading of the books from, especially from somebody as creative as, as Quran is it, it gives room to, for these kind of like personal flares one, one might give either in your head and reading it or, you know, when adapting it, it feels like, Oh, there's a shrunken head as happens in this world of the film. Like it, it, it feels like this is one consistent world he's created where we'll talk about this in Goblet of Fire, but it, that film feels like, why don't like every day they got to set and said like, what would be cool in this scene? Or what would be weird? And it's like, they're 
I guess the word is consistency. Like, does this feel co- in, internally consistent? I think the answer I forgot for Prisoner of Azkaban is a resounding, like, yes. All this, the world as presented is internally consistent within the two two hours and 20 minutes of this movie. Now, the reason that, raises, that raises the question of, is it a problem that this is, that this is a kind of different world than the previous film? Um, you know, <laughs> new Dumbledore, new Hogwarts, New, apparently, an entirely new country <laughs> that Hogwarts is in. Uh, like, it's like, this is a, a wildly different world, um, and that, that is a massive complaint with a lot of fans of the first two films. Like, what is this? This is not the world that I ca- that, that I fell in love with. Um, like, I feel like a lot of films I would view that as a problem, but for some reason I don't with this. Um, what's your th- what are your thoughts on that? Well, like I said, I'm I'm kind of a stickler for continuity. And so there are these things where I'm like, ah, it bothers me that like we used to just walk straight out there and we would get to the hut. And now we do all of this and they just instinctively walk down all these stairs. And so I'm like, we don't didn't do that last year. This is <laughs> this is wrong. There's if you if you started the movie here in universe and rewound time, what does it what does this look like? Why is there how can we how can I make these two things gel uh and so like there are things like that for me where i'm like it it, there's a level of there's something that i have to overcome and and i don't always i don't love having to try to feel like i have to overcome something in a film but it's also it's not as simple as this is different therefore bad It, it you you trade off and so what we what we get for giving up this kind of visual continuity is this incredible gothic horror vision of, you know, what we talked about in the previous episodes when talking about Hogwarts was there's, there's a real sense of, of history to it. Like you could, you could stumble over this castle and you just walking around Ireland and you just come across this on the, on the Irish shores and you're like, Oh yeah, this feels like a, it has a place in history. Um, Whereas this feels much more intentionally fantastical, you know, with, with dark creaking corridors and, uh, and, you know, you, we kind of had that kind of stuff in, in Nocturne Alley uh, and um, Diagon Alley and stuff. But, but Hogwarts was historical. And here it's, it's like that same kind of design. Well, not, not Tim Burton design, because there is still definitely, definitely a difference between, Quran's production design and and that very Burton-ish looking uh, Diagon Alley, but it still it feels more like out of a like a gothic children's storybook, you know. And I think that despite my my issues and lack of continuity, I'm okay with giving that up if it means getting this really cool twisted warped warped trees, warped stairs, everything like it just it feels warped, Tom. Warped top, like it feels. It feels like what Del Toro said, which is kind of like it's it's crooked and and off and in really cool, creepy ways. Like it, the visuals match the the twisted sense of paranoia and dark fantasy here. Yeah, like you. For me, you you just have to have the ability to compartmentalize. I'm like, is it different? Yeah, but it's also better. So. I'm just going to go with it. Um, this is a shorter way of saying what you said. <laughs> yeah, sorry for rambling. <laughs> um, 
And I, I want to get back to what I mentioned earlier about pacing, about how this film freaking moves. Um, like the, the 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 scenes are often really short. There's the and the 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 wild thing is just how did he think of so many creative transitions? Because there's so many wild, crazy transitions. The camera swooping around through the glass and around the whopping willow and following birds, and they're getting killed. And oh no, Dementors at the edge of the castle and through a window again. <laughs> it's like there's so many wildly different transitions. And they're needed because this film is covering so much ground and story and multiple seasons and all these different scenes. And I think that might bring me to probably my only real complaint about this film is that I think it might, it, it borders on being a little rushed. Like, not like definitively, where like that was a huge problem, but like when I, when you, like when I, particularly when I was, you know, pausing a lot and writing out hundreds and hundreds of words of notes, I did notice it, f it felt like all the scenes were, were just a kind of, a lot of the scenes felt a little kind of sped through or a little short. And then just like, there's so much ground to cover to where you kind of, it's hard to like pause and focus on any one theme or idea or, or rhythm or just moment because we gotta be in the next scene. Um, which is like kind of, kind of the exact opposite of like, of how, Sorcerer Stone was like, we have this scene, and boom, a guillotine comes down, chops it off, and then we have the next scene starts, it builds, and then stops. Like this is like, oh no, we're in this scene, and that flows perfectly into this one, and we're, it, it's like just we're just like following a single thread, but it's like flying through all kinds of different um, scenarios, and after two hours and twenty minutes. There, it's it's truly impressive and I think kind of masterful how much he's able to stuff into this movie, but I think an extra ten minutes to just a little bit here, another thirty seconds here, you know, another a little bit more focused on that subplot, I think could have, like it's a masterpiece as it is. Like to say it could have elevated it would be, feels weird, but like I don't know, it made it just like it, it's almost perfect, but then would have made it perfect. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, we we talked about how. Uh, Chamber of Secrets, you definitely feel that runtime. Maybe, maybe they can, maybe Chamber can can <laughs> give this movie just a little. Maybe, maybe give it ten minutes. Take off ten minutes from Chamber and 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 give a ask. Because that's how movies work. work. Exactly. <laughs> Trust me. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of get the same feeling. And the weird thing is, it, the the incredible transitions almost pointed out all the more because it is such. Like whenever I think about this movie it doesn't take a long time before I like start visualizing the, the whomping willow or the owl flying or the, you know, the ground, like just I'm, I'm picturing the way we're moving around. And then before you know it, I'm like, we see a lot of that, don't we? And it's kind of cause we're moving a lot. Like you, you really, you really get the sense of like, yeah, we're, we never really, we don't ever really sit. And so I think, that is a criticism here because something that I do really enjoy about the previous two, especially uh, Chamber of Secrets, is you know these movies are so wonderfully divided by season, uh, and that like they have so much fun with Halloween and Christmas, and and something that I, I really really love about that is you know, when it starts snowing, it feels like oh we we are in the Christmas section of the movie, you know we're the grounds are covered in snow. People are like Hagrid's carrying around a tree. We're all <laughs> bundled up. Like it, it, you feel like 
we're going to sit in winter for a bit. Like, let's let the movie be a cold Christmassy movie for, for this portion of it. And there's something like comfortable and cozy about that to me. And despite the fact that we still break things out, like I, I love the no, visual. This is a Gothic horror movie. We can't have comfortable and cozy. That's well, well, maybe so, but <laughs> you do like, even though we're, we're, you know, denoting these different changing seasons with these cool visuals, we're never sitting within them very long. And I would like to have just been able to kind of, kind of just sit down in this movie during some moments. And credit where it's due, it was Columbus that came up with the, you know, follow a flying bird as it flies over the castle and establishes the change of season. That was something he did first, um, even though kind of Corone seems to get most of the credit for the transitions um, with his film. I definitely agree there. It's just, it's not, it's not a, it's, it's not even like a crippling flaw. It's, it's one of those like slight nags on the edge of your mind kind of things. Yeah, you know, just something about Quran though is it, he's taking this challenge in the script because, you know, a, a lot of this also, it's, it's not just, it's not on the direction. It's, it's mostly on the script. Although I don't want to criticize the script because I think the script is fantastic. Um, but it is, you know, you got to give it, got to give him credit for being able to move. So, and I, I think you, you had already mentioned this, but just almost take what feels like maybe a bit of feeling rushed in the script. And that, that translates to the movie a bit, but, but trying to find some way to make that speedy feeling into a positive. And it's like, well, that's going to be part of the DNA of this movie. Are, are these transitions, these 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 moments of of movement and and that's something that i really love about him is that he takes what feels like just a little this little thing that happens in the script and he just he makes it this awesome moment like there's uh the the first moment with a dementor on the train i love you've got this awesome shot and in in the previous two films the the hogwarts express is this wonderful happy bright red train screening through beautiful uh english countryside like it's just it's so nice and warm and here we've got this camera outside it's dark and it's rainy and you almost feel cold uh and like the way we we zoom in on it and then the 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 pain freezes over and the the shadow of the dementor grows over the 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 door of the window on the door and it slowly and like just these moments he really takes and, and creates these cool visuals and, uh, and, and just the image of the, like the fingers coming towards you. And I don't know, like obviously any filmmaker is going to be like, Oh, I, I got to do something cool with this. this is the introduction of a Dementor. But, but all those little moments like the shot outside and letting it freeze over and having the characters turn and changing the mood and then letting it come in. It's just, he takes these little things and he just turns them into something special. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, discuss some of the uh, new characters here. Uh, and starting with a character uh, that isn't quite new. Um, well, is with a, with, um, with a Michael Gambon as Dumbledore. Uh, how do you feel about his take on the character here? Uh, I really love it within this movie. Uh, I think he's, you know, the, the, the script doesn't really, give him the moments to to really attempt the the kind of warm grandfatherly kindness that uh richard harris was able to bring you know i mean just the the scene with the uh 
the mirror in Sorcerer's Stone. It's like that is that scene is just designed for someone like Harris. Um, but here, because it is a kind of a darker tone and there's more paranoia, you have to have kind of a more reassuring, but reassuring through something that feels commanding, you know, and uh, I think he really nails the role from his introduction, which is also its own amazing scene where you, you have the, the windows and the windows transition to the puddles and then we get double trouble, which is just so freaking cool uh, and crazy and weird. But that whole moment with, with when the music starts and the camera is moving through everything and then he comes into frame, that monologue he gives is full of such like, I, I don't know, like you wouldn't think it, but to me, I think that's such an incredible moment of, of acting because he really, you, you get a lot, you, you can read in a lot into it. You, you get a sense of his power and his authority there. You, you really pick up on his disdain for Dementors being on his, his, uh, his grounds, you know, th- there are Dementors here. <laughs> it shouldn't be right. Care for his, his job, you know, his position as, you know, headmaster and the care for his students. Yeah. Like this, you get so much of that in that speech and you get a, sense of the kind of the wonder and mystery and power of the character i, I love the the delivery you know like um happiness can be found in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light yeah like that like that's just that moment is so amazing from him and so you know he's not in it a whole lot but when he is you really you get a sense of of this kind of this reliable power yeah, the, the 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 overwhelming impression you get from uh from Richard Harris is the kindly grandfatherness. You know that scene you mentioned of the, with the mirror, where he's just going to very softly and with great understanding give you the advice that's going to change your life for the better. Gambon, he doesn't have a lot of that. What he does have is a, a an element that Richard Harris did not have, which is this deep intelligence um like when when he's giving that speech and there's a close-up of his eyes you're like okay this man is way smarter than me he knows his stuff like that intelligence and also like the 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 thing that's intrinsic to Dumbledore is the fact that he is particularly in the later books like he is always he always has a plan and then he has backup plans and he you know he has plans for harry he has plans for his teachers he has plans for snape he probably even has a plan for neville like he's he's got all these you know plans upon plans and scheming and plots and he's also running the world and trying to save it i'm like he's like there's a feeling sometimes that like the scenes we have with him, he's only functioning with, you know, with Harry and with the other characters at like maybe like 10, 15%. Like there's something else going on behind it. Uh, in our previous uh, review, we talked about like, it reminded, reminded us of Tony Stark, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s performance, where when you watch him, it feels like, yes, yes, he is fully engaged in the present. Also, he is planning his next invention. Also, he's, you know, planning about how to get in bed with that girl and how to, you know, make more money at this shareholder's call. Like, there's this sense, like, of both being fully engaged in the moment and also lining up the next 10 things and thinking about something else at the same time. Like, he's operating on a different plane of existence from the rest of us mere mortals, um, which is in, which 
I don't know. I, I don't know if people actually do that. Do genius billionaires actually do that? Or is that just something that happens through really, really, really good acting from, you know, excellent thespians? I don't know. But it's here. <laughs> yeah. And and there like that also kind of makes it that's part of what makes him feel like this kind of reliable authority figure where you're like, I I'm gonna rest in the idea that you know what's going on. And something else that I that I do want to want to bring up is he's he's maybe more more of, of he, this Dumbledore is more fun. Uh, kind of reminds me of he, he has these Gandalf moments where he's he's not a little like he's the way the way he's joking you know after uh, oh crap I'm forgetting the specifics of the scene. This is what happens whenever we wait too long. Which scene? Uh, the scene where they're they're there to kill uh, the Griffin. Oh, uh, where he's like pointing out the strawberry the strawberry patch and. Yeah, what do they what do they forget? What's the, what's the reason why he's like? Oh, I got. He mentions getting a drink. Oh, afterwards. Yeah, it was like search the skies, but in the meantime, I could use a glass of tea or a very large brandy. Yeah, like the, the delivery is like. I don't know. It's, it's fun. And there's almost an energy to it itself. Like there's, there's a a level of like smart wit behind it, but also, I don't know. It's, it's not what you would expect or what, what we get from Harris. He really enjoys making normies squirm with just by just saying a random thing or being a little weird. Um, <laughs> I think my favorite, like, yeah, he, he, that's another, you know, intrinsic element to Dumbledore is his just, his constant quirkiness. Um, and I think Gambon definitely gets that as well. You're like, we did it. Did what? Good night. <laughs> just a little wave. Uh, like, like it's so much fun. I like, was like, and Miss Granger, three turns should do it. He gives her that wink. Um, like, it's, it's just like, he's, he's, he's. He's great. He's so good. Um, later on, he may have issues with the performance, but uh, and, like he fa- he famously did not read the books. Like he's like like I'm gonna try. I'm just gonna you know read the script and do what the director tells me. Um, and I think that can work in a lot of circumstances here. I think with a character that is that is so well defined in the books, anything that is like the slightest bit not Dumbledore-ish or even a lot not Dumbledore-ish, <laughs> Goblet of Fire, um, will stand out. And I think heard his performance um but yeah here i think he did pretty much as good as he could yeah yeah running through a couple more uh the other the other one of the other major characters is uh, remus lupin as played by david thulis is this is i think lupin in the books is maybe my favorite character in the series and i he gets a lot he, he gets a good bit less to do in the films but at least in this film he is definitely my favorite um he's just kind of the perfect teacher um, like he carries himself with so much humility. There's like a, there's definitely a lot of like a, like a sad <laughs> misery underlining everything that I think kind of he brings into his, his humility and kindness. Um, like it, it, like it's not like he's he's had a very difficult, sad, miserable life, but instead of al- allowing that to make him bitter, he kind of just funnels that into this you know deep kindness. Um, but. Like, it's it's not in a way that feels like a fake person where you have these you know these movie characters that are just like Dumbledore <laughs> who are just like these perfect all knowing people like he feels like a flawed very tired human 
but in spite of that, he is kind. Um, there's just there's a re, there's a, a, re, a, feeling, a real feeling of reality to him, and just the way he teaches, like he just he's a little hands off. He'll tell them what to do. He'll give them this. He'll he he respects the students. He doesn't teach talk to them like children or even like students in that regard. Like you, you get the feeling that he kind of he speaks to them as if they were adults and with respect, but all, with a measure of authority. It's a, it's a, there's a lot of things happening, like, like, and the, just the way he deals with Neville. And this means a lot. Also means a lot in the book because Neville is constantly getting abused by Snape. And in, in Prisoner of Azkaban in particular, well, it's the only story where Lupin is a teacher. But anyway, like in that, in that we have like him getting really abused by Snape, and then he goes over to Lupin, and Lupin is the only teacher in all of Hogwarts, probably the only person in all of Hogwarts, who says. I believe that you can do this. I'm going to take, I'm going to call you up. I'm going to give you the tools. I'm not going to take any excuses. And I'm just going to point you in the right direction. And I'm going to let you do this. And, and you feel like that's like kind of like a, a turning point for, for, um, for Neville, just a person who believed that he could do it. And just that, that, that little bit of confidence from an adult is that weird balance of like, it's, te- teaching is not just about, particularly when you're like teaching a trade, or in this case, you're teaching something that has to be replicated. It's not just about giving the information. It's about like just a, like giving a doubtful person the belief that they can actually that they can do this thing, and it, it's, it's life changing. You know, and, and I think like just that, all those different things he's go he's is happening. Plus more, you know, more character and emotion stuff elsewhere. But like I just I he's without a doubt one of my favorite teachers. Or film film teachers. Yeah, uh, something that I really love about him is with with other um, professors. It feels like people, the other professors in the films, are okay with like integrating themselves into the student dynamics. They'll, they'll be like, "Oh, we know that you know Neville is kind of the klutz. You got to be careful around him. Let's like, and maybe even." poke at him a little bit like a when other teachers you mean snape well snape but like even it feels like even with mcgonagall there's I, I i should have noted this but like it feels like there's even moments where there's like there's some level of awareness from her of like yeah, it's boy it's neville well, isn't it well well not to go too hard on her remember in uh in the book it's either half blood prince i think it's half blood prince where she's like where, you know, where he's like, well, my, I, I don't want to take this subject because my grand thinks, you know, I shouldn't do it. And she goes like, whatever, I don't care what your grand says. You're able to do it. Oh, for sure. I mean, McGonagall is my, sometimes I think she's my favorite in the series. I just, I really love McGonagall. Uh, but it's just, it, it feels like there's, like, like there is an awareness and to some extent an integration into the dynamics. Whereas with Lupin, like you said, he's like, oh, y'all are all my students. <laughs> The line from this book, you know, what abysmally foolish person, you know, left out the, you know, left out a, a list of all the passwords. Oh, of course it's Neville. <laughs> Which is a deleted scene. It didn't make it into the movie, but uh, if you look at the deleted scenes, that, that line is in there. Uh, but yeah, like it is that, that kind of, he, he, there's a level of equality among the students that, that he gives them. Uh, and also, like, I feel like with a, a lot of time with movie teachers, they always go one of two extremes. There's there's either the overly strict, overly severe teacher. Everything is by the books. Every like just this 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 kind of authority that is not at all conducive to real learning. 
And then there's the other kind of carpe diem, seize the day, just this do whatever you want, do what feels right in the moment. I'm your, I'm, don't think of me as a teacher, think of me as your friend. We're, you know, I'm not like those other people who I'm, I'm not going to give you detention, but you're going to, you're going to learn, you know, you're going to learn by doing and this and that. And like, there's a level of carefreeness to it. And it's not that he's in the middle per se, because I think he, de- he leans more towards, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a good bit of leeway. You know, I'm going to let you off the leash and we're going to, we're just going to go at bog arts like day one, but he's, he's not an extreme though. He, you do get a level of, or you get a sense of, you know, there's, there's care here. There is concern. uh, And if need be, there's protection that will be provided from him. And so he is giving them a lot to do, but it's never at the expense of, of, control of the situation yeah and there's, there's there are moments where he has to step up and be the authority figure like that scene after harry wanders the castle and gets caught by snape and he gets him off he gets him out of trouble with snape and then he goes and uh you know softly yells at him uh for risking his life and is like oh that, that hurts so much more than it, if snape had given us you know, a month of detention like th- because he is so patient and so kind him you know, radiating any form of disappointment is like a, a, a knife in the gut. Nobody wants to disappoint those sad eyes. And kind of moving off what we're talking about with Lupin, because uh, he's he's relevant. Uh, I, I do want to talk about Harry, because this is very much Harry Potter's film. Um, like the other characters, you know, they all have their place. Like even, even Ron and Hermione kind of fall by the wayside. You know, in you know, in favor of giving you know, giving uh, Harry as much time as he needs, you know, for his his internal arc, and they, like this is very much a film that like it it, it all wraps around the, the journey that Harry is going through, which wasn't as much even with the Chamber of Secrets, which has I think a very strong narrative. There's a lot there's a lot of stuff happening, and Harry's a part of that. Whereas this film very much feels like Harry's movie, um, and the the journey he's going through. Um, I feel like it, it's 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 about reckoning with his past, you know, who his parents were and, and, and how like who his parents were and how they made him who he is, um, and reckoning with you know the very violent end they came to, um, and it, it's, there's a there's so much about you know memory and legacy and Harry you know wrestling with you know the, with the violence that he was born out of, um. And the, the the past in the shape of Sirius Black or the Dementors kind of coming back to haunt him, um, and just the, the the continuing motif of memory I think is really powerful throughout the film. Um, like even going back to the very first few scenes, like the dinner scene, you know, after um, like where he explodes on Aunt Marge after he calls his you know his mother a bitch, and he, like the the memory of his parents, and he goes up and looks at the picture, and then like with the Dementors coming in and. What like what do the mentor, the Dementors do? They make him relive his his mother, particularly his mother's death, and we hear the scream, um, and he is bringing back whether whether it's repressed memories memories or simply his imagination filling in the gaps. Like that haunted aspect of his past is coming back to the surface, and as well, so you have like. Aunt Marge assailing his parents. You have the Dementors making him remember it. Then you have Sirius Black, from as we understand it, the man responsible for their death. Like all of these things are kind of rising up and attacking him, and like and then we have the Patronus, 
Um, and this was this was a theme that I I can't believe I missed it because it's so obvious. But you know, I'm an idiot. <laughs> then we have like the Patronus, which is the Patronus is memory made real. It's powered by memory, and so you have the 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 Dementors. And as well as you know, Sirius and Marge, they're attacking the memory of his parents. Like the, the mentors come in, and they make him remember the worst, the worst memory he has with his parents. And and in order to combat combat that, you have him reaching in and finding the happiness that he felt. Like, and I love that scene where with with Loop and like he doesn't even know if it's a real memory, but the, the feeling of happiness that he must have felt when he had two parents and had a loving home. And like the, the, it's the positive memories of his past and of his parents is what is rising up and combating, you know, the misery and depression that the Dementors represent. So it's that, it's that you know, you have you know, horrible memories and good memories, kind of, kind of combating and just finding, essentially finding peace with the past. Like yes, he has. Like if you look at it from one way. His story is horrible. Orphan, you know, at one year old and sent to live with these horrible people. But also what this this film is reckoning with the beauty of the family that was the Potters, you know, in their time. And even in that the one year that they had him, the gifts they gave him and the, you know, the, the love they provided in that, you know, Lily laying down her life and giving him the protection that we've seen in the previous two films. Um and the friends they had were like Lupin, who's you know telling them about the, how wonderful it was. It's like, it's like it's this. It's presenting us with these like, these two different ways of viewing memory and tragedies and how we view the past. Like either way, like he's like he if he if he chose to be just a miserable, depressed wretch because of who he was, that would warrant is not the right, right word, but like it would it's understandable like, that he had a horrible past. But also, like you could take the same the the same memory the memory of like you can take the same life and find you know the positive memories in that and choose to focus on it. It's it's, a matter of focus. Like it's either way, it's the same life. That be it the Dementors or the Patronus. It's like choosing to focus and guide yourself by one of those avenues. I'm kind of rambling, but it's it's just it's a really fascinating theme of just the way that both the Patronus and the Dementors feed off of memory. And it's, 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 it's whichever memory you choose to focus on. I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Like, no, it is cool. Cause I mean, those, those themes, you know, er, earlier I, I said like, it's, it feels like you don't really know what the plot is or what this movie's about. At least I, I don't feel like I do for a long part of its runtime, but you, you get us like the idea of of past and legacy and memory is like a recurring theme to me at first it feels like what might be like a motif and then it becomes it's revealed to be like the central idea um but you know it, it starts off you know he's looking at this old picture of his parents dancing in in the rustling leaves uh and and the first sign of real conflict is you know whenever his aunt insults his mother and that makes him snap like that. That's kind of this inciting incident that sets him off. And so it's, these ideas are there from the very beginning. Um, and it kind of like through the conversations with Lupin and, and just have by necessity being so central both to to mentors and the, Patron- the Patronus, it's just, it's all of it's, this uh, it's 
it continues to accumulate these moments to where like at the end, whenever you know, he's waiting for his father to come and he realizes it's, it's him, but then his Patronus is a stag. Like it's felt like, it's just, it's, I don't know. I guess I just, between this and Star Wars, I'm just a sucker for movies about legacy and lineage and, and this and that, or lack of lineage or what you do with lineage and this and that. But what I love about this one is it, it's not a, well, you can't, like, you aren't born from your past. You have to entirely create yourself. And it's not a, it, it's also not, you are only what you are because of the past. It's, he, he's treasuring the past. He's treasuring uh, these memories and the sacrifices parents made. As Lupin says, he needs, you know, they gave everything for you. You know, you've got to look out for, you've got to, you've got to be smart with your own life. Uh, and so, so he, there's this sense of honoring the past, but instead of his father, like this ghost of his father or, or whatever he thought it may have been, it's him, but it's, it's him motivated and given strength through, you know, what, what has shaped him into who he is. So I don't, it's, it's a weirdly nuanced, I feel like uh, approach to, to our parents and how they, how they make us what we are and how our past makes us what we are and what we do with that. And I think the the film gives us one of the more meaningful angles on a very cliche. You know, oh, you know, you know, your your insert lost loved one isn't really gone. They're always here inside your heart. And I I, I remember always just kind of rolling my eyes at this. That happens so many times in movies. Like like what, what does that even mean? Um, but I in this story, it's when we have that final scene. It's like quite literal. Like you have. You know, his mother's protection flowing in his veins and like his father is alive as his patronus. Like these, these are pieces of his parents that are now truly part of who he is. Um, and it's like, I, I, I always hated that. <laughs> I just kind of hated that kind of cliche, but like, I, I love that. You, It's, it's given real weight and meaning here. Um, a scene that there's, you know, one of the really good scenes, there's several really good scenes between Lupin and Harry, but the one on the, on the bridge, where he's telling him about um, his parents and just some really good subtle filmmaking where you have sort of the kind of like walking back and forth between the different sides of the bridge and towards the end where Lupin kind of turns away and he's on the other side and you have Harry kind of his like face in the foreground as he's telling you and you just have Harry kind of reacting to these stories of his parents that he never heard and just soaking it all in and really, really good acting from Daniel Radcliffe. I was about to say, that's, that's that's the moment where I I feel like he really is starting to shine as an actor because there's there, there's something that feels so real about that like to see somebody you know we we've all when we meet somebody who who's like who is an acquaintance of somebody that we know and we hear things from their point of view you know like just being able to hear another perspective on somebody that we know. Uh, or in Harry's case, he may not know his parents, but at this point, he's got a very defined idea of who and what they were. And to, to the point of where, like, he might, it, it's like he knew them, you know, he, he's got such fond love for them. Um, and that moment, as we push in further to his face and, and he's talking about, you know, he's how much he's like his father and in that kind of spiritedness and just these, these little small smiles and, and, very nuanced kind of reaction shot. Like it's, it really does feel like a, like somebody is 
is hearing something for the first time and, and being told new, new aspects of these people that he's going to love and cherish. Like with every word that Lupin can give him, that's just one more way he's able to full, like more flesh out who his parents were. And like, you you get the sense that he really is treasuring that conversation in that moment. Yeah. And I, I think overall he gives a very good performance for like a 13 or 14 year old. Um, like he, he has, this is his movie. So he has to anchor it. And I think he shows that you're the charisma of a real movie star. There are moments where some of the line readings like, hey, you want to do that again? Maybe. Um, but like, just given, I think, general child performance, I think he does a, a, just a great job. And you definitely see so many sparks of what's, you know, what has come since in his career. Like, he, he's a genuine actor and movie star, despite, you know, a couple uh, weird deliveries here and there. Yeah. Like, there are moments where it's the what's on the page is really it's demanding something of just a, a high caliber, like a, just a. a an incredible experienced performer. Like, you know, whenever he's talking about how, you know, I'm going to find him and I'm going to kill him. Like, it's like, ah, reach deeper into you. Like I need, I need more, but, <laughs> but it, it's still like, he still has all of these great moments throughout any, he, and he's never actively bad or anything. Ron and Hermione don't get a lot to do in this movie. They're, they're much more kind of part of the world and, you know, they're, they're there to react off of Harry, but I, I do think both of them are quite good. Um, you know, they've got their own little bakering happening in the background. Like, it is funny, like, how big of a subplot uh, Crookshanks pos- trying to eat uh, Scabbers was. And here it's just like, oh, we get, like, two references in the background. Um, like, yeah, there's so much more diminished. But I, I do think they're all they're very good. Like, Hermione has this in the book and a little bit less here but also present like she's kind of running ragged because she's living in three different timelines at once and having you know, every day she like is like twice as long for her than anyone else like it's wearing her thing she's taking on too much work and I, I think uh emma watson does a good job kind of integrating that more almost invisible aspect of the story into where she does seem a bit uh, more emotional in this film than um in the previous two where she's like trying to deal with all of that, you know, is, is more subtle. I think, I think she does, like, she does a good job. Like in our previous, our previous recording, you, you said you had some issues with her, but I, I don't really like, sure. There are, there are, I think some line readings that are off, but that's kind of like a, a shared thing. But overall, I think she does do a good job bringing what, what is, what is a much more emotional performance uh, to this, to the film? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I forget who we've talked about before, but there, there are some actors where it's like, you accept the things that maybe don't work because you just, you like the persona, you, you like the personality and the, the presence that they bring, if not always the performance. And I don't, again, with her, I don't think she's ever bad. It's just, um, I, I don't know if I think she's even beyond this, like even in terms of like having gone through the rest of the of the series and Little Women and the Bling Ring and so like I I just don't I don't think she's maybe an amazing actress. But y- yes, I, I I would say now I think she's probably the most wooden of the three. But like going back to like Sorcerer Stone, she I think she was undeniably the best of the three. Like I, I don't think who she is now as a performer sure. is the same as who she was, you know, as a child performer. I, and I agree, but but I think here I start 
to notice maybe some of the similarities between maybe what I don't think always works in our modern performances and uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. But again, it's she has a real charm to her and she's got a fun personality and like just the dynamic and chemistry that the three of them have together all combine to, for me, completely overcome whatever issues I might have with a performance. Yeah, I like that we get different uh, different pairings where it's, you know, Harry and Hermione for the entire climax or Harry and Ron for this scene or Hermione and Ron. I love how awkward and just, like, painfully awkward Hermione and Ron are when they're together, like, uh, when they're on their trip alone to, to um, Hogsmeade. And you, you definitely feel kind of the, the, the early signs of, of their young love together. Uh, like little moments like where they, you know, Hermione grabs his hand in the hippogriff scene or she kind of like cries on his shoulder when they think Buckbeak's been assassinated. Like they, they throw it like these are things that weren't really present in the book. But since we know where they're going, they can kind of toss in little hints. Yeah. And then there's uh, Gary Oldman as Sirius Black. Uh, what do you think of him? <laughs> He's amazing as always. Uh I, I, he's got like two different modes in this, and I, I really, crazy really crazy and crazier. Well, crazy, <laughs> and then like kind of just sweet and unassuming, and and like almost bashful, but but lovable. Like he's he's the former for the bulk of it. Like I I I understand the Shakespeare aspect that he brought up. Like whenever they're in there, in, in the in the shrieking shack. And he's got all of these amazing lines that he's getting to spout. He's got like, he's, he's. I did my waiting. Yeah. Oh, I love that line. And, that delivery. and, and something that I really love about him, the costume is very simple. It's just like this, this washed out to like prison looking outfit. But for some reason here, like it just, it looks, for me, it's iconic. Like it looks the tattoos and the, the rotten teeth. And that doesn't that like the, the it's the teeth and the greasy hair and the dirty face. And because he's Gary Oldman, like he leans into all of it. Like he'll fling around his hair and let you see how greasy it is. And like whenever he's giving his lines, he's like, it's a very open mouth reading. So you get a good look at all of his gross teeth. And like, it's just, he's eating up the the cost like everything that they gave him to work with as a performer and it's just it's so much fun and so like b- between the the outfit and the hair and teeth and the lines it's just he's having he's he's milking this for all it's worth and it's amazing yeah it's really good well, i'll probably get into more specifics uh later on when we talk about specific scenes um any other cast members you wanted to mention um just because so much of this is positive, I will talk about one thing, one cast member who I'm not a big fan of in this. Uh, I, I don't love Tom Felton as Draco here. I think he's able to kind Send of... Send all hate mail to James, all you <laughs> fangirls. Uh, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe sickly looking punk kids just isn't my thing. Uh, but like... In the in the first two, he gets a pass in the way that kind of everybody does, like because he, he's having fun, like Potter, like it's just it's it's spitting everything out. It's it's a fun child performance, but here and I, I don't know if it's completely on him or if it's maybe you know direction from Quran, but every now he just he feels a little bit too extra even for this world, like where 
you know, with the the buck beak incident, just thought, oh, he's killed me, he's killed me, oh, oh, like the, the kind of. I forgive him because of his delivery. You know, you're gonna pay for this. You and your bloody chicken. Like it's it's fun for sure, but it's just I don't know. It feels it feels put on. It feels like well, it literally well, is it, in it, that scene. But the, the thing is, what I don't what he's I think putting on putting on something. Well, what what hurts the performance? I think is. I don't think even somebody with with Lucius as a father, nobody is going to command any level of even feigned respect after how like just depressingly pathetic he is sometimes. Which is that's kind of a bug thing too, to be fair. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I feel like there's a way to do that without just being almost like there's just a sense of over the topness that just doesn't mesh with the rest of the world. Like getting punched by Hermione and like that seems very satisfying but <laughs> I don't know they're, they're just moments where I'm like you're you're not really occupying the same space as everybody else you're a little bit too I know the first movies came out or like aired on Disney Channel like every year but you're almost too Disney Channel <laughs> like with some of your <laughs> bigger reactions uh, well, speaking of a cast member that I'm not deeply fond of uh, Timothy Spall is Peter Pettigrew um I don't know. Like speaking of like me feeling like you're in a different film, like he he goes so hard into the rat aspect. Uh, like he's like he's got his hands up by his face, he's like snuffling, and, and like his line deliveries are so big and weird, and uh, like he's going for it. But uh, I kind of wish he would have pulled back and just give acted like a person. Um, like it feels like he's he's also kind of in a different movie. Like he only you know, he's only has that one big scene, but in that one scene he he makes a big impression. And for me, it's not an entirely positive one. Yeah. So I I'm not I'm still not sure whether I really like or don't like this performance. I might be somewhere in the middle. Whether there's something that I love that this weird gothic fantastical tale allows for this mouse looking man to be this weird thing he is and. And on a sense, I'm like, I buy that this is that this is the same world with the the shrunken Jamaican heads and the the monster in a room and a book that eats you. Like it's it feels like it works there, but then sometimes <laughs> it doesn't. And I don't, it's hard to completely define. And w- with the rat thing though, like that's another instance of like, I don't know what all how much of blame is on him and how much is on Koran because like they dressed him like a rat. Like he's, he's a rat for most of the movie. And then when it comes to his prosthetics and it's got like, they, the movie itself and the costume, everything about the production around him is heavily leaning on a rat. So it wouldn't surprise me if Karan was behind the camera. Like, all right, no, hold, hold your hands up to your mouth. Hold, stick out your teeth a bit. Like it, it feels like he's, he's leaning in to what is very much explicitly there with the character as far as the movie is concerned. Yeah. Other big cast member is up uh, is uh, Emma Thompson as uh, Trelawney. She, she's just like one of the best actresses just period. I think she's quite excellent here. It's a very small role, very ridiculous role. Um, I guess one where the ridiculousness is a bit more warranted because her scenes are much more comic. Whereas Pettigrew scenes are very dramatic and emotional. Um, and like she's just, this is not like she's mostly just fun. I, I like the way, she, the way she kind of snaps when dealing with her mind. You're like, you're like you're, 
You, you may be young in years, but the heart that beats beneath your bosom is as shriveled as an old maid's. Your soul is dry as the pages of the books to which you so desperately cleave. And she's like patting her hand and smiling at her. Like, that, her cadence in her delivery is awesome. Yeah. I feel like, especially with the later films, she's one where like I really miss everything we got to do with her in the books. But but here, like I, I feel like we, we got what we needed and maybe... I don't know, maybe more, but we got her essence from the books. And I think Thompson is just such a fun, like her take on the character is so fun. And, and she wears those glasses so perfectly. Like it's a, it's a good addition. It's a fun addition. Yeah. Uh, now I want to move into kind of discussing the climax. Um, and this is, this might be my favorite climax of the entire series. Like, I think like Jake, for me, JK Rowling is like the, one of the many things I love about her is the way, she'll kind of like turn a normal day into a life or death climax and they're always so satisfying in the way she you know all the setups all the various setups and payoffs you know throughout the story they're, they're satisfying but also very often kind of bittersweet and tragic and like she she does so much in the climaxes of her books and this one it's so good like she gives it to us twice um and so the, we go through the first time um and we go into the Shrieking Shack, and th- th- this scene is is wild. The scene in the Shrieking Shack, where kind of all the various mysteries and questions we've had are turned on their head, and we're getting all these answers. And like I wrote down, like all the the, the amount of turns and reversals and betrayals like that are happening in that scene. So you have like, oh, wait, like the dog is serious black. And then Harry, you know, wrestles him to the ground and Lupin, Lupin arrives and like, okay, good. You know, teacher's here. Adult order is restored. And then, oh no, like Lupin, he's working with Sirius and Lupin's a werewolf. And then wait, wait, Sirius didn't betray James and Lily. Um, and like Peter Pettigrew's still alive and Snape arrives. And, you know, he's going to hand Sirius over the Dementors and Harry turns on him. <laughs> then, you know, so they reveal Scabbers uh, you know, as Pettigrew. Uh, then, you know, finally you have, you know, the, the climax where Harry spares his life. Like all of those things are happening and people are, like running around tables and they're yelling at each other. And and, and, and the fact that I love so much is that, that they built the Shrieking Shack with the the, the walls, they actually move and breathe. Like the, the, the they're on mechanics and hydraulics. Like the, even like the, there's so much uncertainty and questions and 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 just reversals. And like that, even the house itself is unstable. Like we don't know where we stand. We don't know what's going on. And it, it's it's so much fun to watch. Just the blocking, the, the performances. Sirius is crazy, and Lupin is calm, and and Harry's angry, and Pettigrew's whimpering. Like. Everything, there's so much overlapping dialogue. That's something that he brought to this film overall. Like, like a lot of there's a, like he doesn't, he's not precious about the dialogue. Like he'll he'll allow them to you know talk over each other, and it gives he gives that sense of life where the characters are kind of it, real interaction where everyone's just kind of interrupting and and trying to say their own, trying to get their lines in. Um, reminds me of kind of like uncut gems or something, uh, mm. to a lesser degree. Um. But it all kind of comes to a head in this scene, and just the how wild this sequence is. It, it, I just like have this huge smile on my face watching it, and oftentimes when I'm watching, I'll get to the end of it and just rewind so I can watch it again, just to drink it all in. So I I feel like this is a big not a turning point. So I, I really like the climaxes in in the books, and you know I'm, I'm not a massive fan of how it plays out in Sorcerer's Stone in the film, but I, I mean, I love Chamber of Secrets 
that that whole final sequence is amazing. But I feel like Azkaban and on is where she gets incredibly creative with her her endings. And it's not just a chamber underneath the school. <laughs> yeah, it's not like and here's the Harry big confrontation with and... the thing. It's the the big climax is is a series of reveals and then a little bit of a like there's a bit of a scrap but that like the action isn't what's ultimately like this big driving force it's just we we hear all this dialogue and then in one of the most creative point uh points we go back and we relive things to see things fresh and like it's it's such an unconventional but so compelling and engaging uh final final 30 minutes or however long it is yeah and just the first way through like you have like serious is <laughs> there's so many good lines you know you know finally the flesh reflects the madness within you know all about the madness within when jeremus <laughs> or you know brilliant snape once again you've put your keen and penetrating mind to the task and as usual come to the wrong conclusion <laughs> serious don't be a fool he can't help it he's have it by now <laughs> Even Snape like gets in on like this like, incredible you know biting dialogue where he's like like you know, they say that Dementor's kiss is difficult to watch but I will make or I will try my best and it's like it's, <laughs> oh, it's why great. don't you run along and play with your chemistry set <laughs> like yeah and and I, I, another thing that I never really thought about but it, I think it adds a whole new dimension like J.K. Rowling is so good at this like I, I don't know that she had all this planned out but the way she's able to like when she's like writing a later book to look back and build off an element like making you know the uh tom riddle's diary of horcrux things like that spoilers if you haven't read it um and here like in this scene you have uh, snape like enraged like frothing at the mouth almost in the book uh at sirius and in the in in this context it's kind of played off as just a schoolboy grudge gone to, you know, just gone, you know, dug in deep and just grown out of all proportions. But once all the revelations in the series happen, you realize whether, whether or not that was intentional, this is, I think this is a true and honest reading of the series. In this moment, he's thinking about, this is the man who betrayed the love of my life to her death. And so like all of that deep rage he has you know, give me a reason, I beg you. It's like, he's complete. It is, it is so deeply motivated at the core of who he is as a character. You know, it's not just a schoolboy grudge. It is this, you know, like the the greatest pain he's ever felt. The, the thing, the the thing that turned him, you know, that changed his side in the war. All of that is coming out in this moment where he's face to face with a man that he's hated. You know, probably more than anyone else. Um, like. I love that she's able to t- come back later on in the series and add this whole other layer to a climax she probably wasn't thinking of at all at the time. Yeah, it. Like you said, it, it's unclear whether that's there, and I I didn't notice it until you brought it up our last recording. But you do get like, it. It it brings the scene beyond school arrivals and into something much more real. Yeah, and. and Again, like the, the layers of Snape as a character, like every single book adds on another one. Um, but we're going to talk a lot about that going forward. But like, just like he's he is such an a hole in this book, 
And yet, I, the, there's this moment that always sticks with me. It's like after Lupin turns and he comes out and then and, and Snape comes out of the hole. And the moment he sees Lupin approaching, he instantly covers the, the students with his body, like puts his, himself in, in their way. Like, like he's... He's the worst, but also he's gonna he'll give his life to protect them. Like, think on that. It's like the the film doesn't the film and the the book they don't allow us to like to come in and leave with these very simplistic views of these characters. There's always there's always another layer to them. Yeah. Yeah. So we go through that sequence and like oh, the scene at the lake, the effect of the Dementors feeding on them is. Like, I don't know, a, a couple years of special effects away from being the cringiest thing. Like, I'm imagining this. I, I, I'm pretty sure I've seen things like this in some 80s fantasy film, and it's horrible. Oh, yeah. Well, like, you just distort the, the screen of it. Like, you're like, oh, no, we're stretching the screen, which makes it look like they're getting stretched down a hole or something. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. But uh, something about the execution, the effects is it's. It's really disturbing. I think the, the thing that sells it is just the scream of agony every time the Dementors come by and just rip pieces of their soul away. Ugh, it's it's unsettling. It, it, and it does feel like there is this distortion of the world around them. Like it, you almost get the sense like they're, they're just they're being pulled apart mo- like by the molecule. It's mm. just it looks again a lot of it is sold because of the performance and and the sound design. But uh, it it feels scary and painful. Yeah, and and the crazy thing is, like, so the first we first time we go through the climax, we have the traditional Harry Potter climax, where everything is resolved and the world is set to right. You know, Sirius, he's not, you know, he's innocent. Harry's gonna leave the Dursleys. He's gonna come live with him. Like everything is great, and then everything goes wrong, and Lupin <laughs> turns into a werewolf, and Sirius is arrested, and like, it, and then we kind of we have. A second climax, we get to fix some of those things, but we still end on a very bittersweet note, which I think is is a, is a new thing for this series. Where, you know, Sirius he he's freed. Harry knows he's innocent, and you know he's kind of regained his humanity. But also, he has to go on the run. You know, he, everyone else still believes he's guilty. Lupin, you know, Lupin. Um, and we learn the truth. You know, he's a, he was a friend of our parents, and like, and you know, he's instrumental in free in uh you know in discovering the truth of of Sirius but now he's been revealed as a werewolf and he has to you know he's he has to leave the school like there like for every good thing that comes out of this finale there's another thing that goes wrong and it feels so much more mature and just deeply bittersweet um than anything we felt in the series so far yeah like for for all the films this is the one where the the tonal and stylistic shift makes sense because before our endings were people coming back and crying and hugging and just, you know, cheers without any hesitation. And this is a lot. I don't know. You you don't get that. I mean, like you said, like we don't we don't just get to take serious back into the castle and everybody's free and we're all fine and having fun and everything's great. It's not the. This is a process. And we can't just celebrate with tears in our eyes. Uh, so this was the this was the movie to have that kind of tonal shift because of its ending. Yeah, I, I just the filmmaking and the the t- time turner sequence is so good. This the the, the ticking clock in the in the in the soundtrack and I, I am such a sucker for just good setups and payoffs. Like Back to the Future, that's like the height of cinema for me. Like when you can just set everything up and then just at the climax, 
it just, I, I know it takes a lot of work and a lot of focus and a lot of thought, but it almost feels like they're just winding it up and letting it go. And the climax just happens on its own because this is the only thing that could have happened because this is what's been set up. And, and just going through and seeing all the things that, you know, the, the rock coming through the window you know, because Hermione threw it or Hermione howling to distract the werewolf, like all the little things are kind of coming to pass. And it just it makes me so very happy to see stuff, play, this, the things play out, you know, from both angles. Yeah, this Prisoner of Azkaban, both the book and the movie, like this is my favorite uh, depiction of time travel. Like it's it's the one that makes the most sense to me, and like even after it's done, I I, I sat down, and I just kind of like thought about it. I was like, okay, so that happens, and then that, and then they get back there at that time. I'm like, I think I'm I think I'm most satisfied with this. Like, where it's, it's all just one singular time stream, and yeah, it, every every change you made already happened. Yeah, like there's. The way it handles the paradox, I think, is really cool. And there's something I love about, like, being back in the right place at the right time. I like, there's the the lack of, I don't know, it, it feels internally sound. Um, yeah. That in a way that's really satisfying to me. Yeah, then we move to the climax, and I, I, I love how, like, it, it's a very internal thing, but the way Radcliffe plays it, where he's like, you know, he's got to come. My dad will be here. And then the camera kind of comes in his face and you just see that little switch of realization. And then he just instantly runs down and does the spell. And <laughs> it's so satisfying. I'm like, like it's the, 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 the film being so focused on him and his arc, like all kind of comes out and is paid off in that moment. You know, then they go and rescue Sirius and, and we get that, that really lovely moment of him talking, and 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 uh, another fantastic bit from um from Gary Oldman, where it's oh, it's hard to believe this is the same person, and yet he's so good. I do yeah. like the same raving lunatic we saw in the Shrieking Shack, and here he's like he's charismatic and quiet and caring, or even the the, the scene where he's offering to. To, um, he's offering Harry a home, I love that and scene. it's it's so delicate. And he's like, I know he's gonna say no, but I gotta say it because it's my duty as a godfather, and I want to be a good godfather. So I'm gonna suck it and up also, like, it's, and take it's this just, disappointment. It feels like he's already made like a connection with him. Like it's it's even beyond duty. It's like, wouldn't it be great to have Harry with? Like, wouldn't wouldn't that just be fun? Just us. But also knowing that I'm a weirdo, he's not gonna want to live with me. So there's a bit like hesitant delicacy to it. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. He, he is so freaking good. It's just the moment you know, your parents are always with you, and just the connection between him and Daniel Radcliffe, and just the little aside. You know, you really are the brightest switch of your age. It's so good. Uh, and of, of course, notable to the climax, uh, Remus is a werewolf, uh, and the design is it's something. <laughs> yeah. So. The design is bold and weird and <laughs> off-putting. And there's something about it that I respect that they could have gone for something more conventional and have been just cool without reservation. But it feels like I was like, that's too easy. I'm going to be weird. And <laughs> I feel like it's the, the effects certainly are not bad, but I feel like I've, this. Does, I've never seen a werewolf with a comb over before. <laughs> it's weird looking. Sure. <laughs> I think it's still it's a few years away 
from being able to really work because the thing, like, it, it feels intentionally off-putting. Like, it's so gangly. The proportions are all weird. It just, it looks sickly and it's very long. Yeah, it's just, it's like, oh, I don't like, I don't like how spindly you are. Um, and I feel like that kind of idea, the, the philosophy behind a design like that, it needs to look tangible. Like I, I would, I would really like this design without it, without too much hesitation. If it looked like I could reach out and feel its gross, mangy, thin fur and gross exposed flesh. Like if it felt like some gross thing I could touch, then I'd be like, this is cool. But it's still, it's got that kind of, uh, the, the CGI shine, I guess, of that era on it. Like it doesn't look like my hand would touch anything if I reached out. Uh, yeah, we kind of we kind of t- talked about the, the bittersweet kind of denouement afterwards where Harry goes and talks with Lupin. That's another really good scene. There's so many good Lupin scenes. In the, every Lupin scene is great. Also, man, he's also involved in like maybe my favorite shot the the moon and the eye like oh. just the sh- the bright white of the moon in that scene and how big like it looks like a painting and the way the camera just like goes into the dutch angle into his eye and and then pulls back out and the screen just looks increasingly washed out and he looks so pale and pitiful like oh my gosh i love that moment so much mvp of the movie is lupin the end uh, all right. anything else at all you wanted to mention about this movie before we t- move into talking about the score uh yeah so well okay two things two things real quick because one of them is a negative and i don't want to end on a negative um we mentioned earlier like he's got a lot of these cr- these crazy things and the reason it all works is because there is some sort of consistency behind it with maybe a couple exceptions and you know we think Pettigrew might be among those exceptions a sequence that i'm not a fan of is the whomping willow scene <laughs> uh like this it's weird in in chamber of secrets that scene like because it is practical effects like it feels like it, the tree is heavy and it's crushing cars and things are falling out. Like it, it looks because it is really tangible, good sound looks, design too. Yeah. Like it's, it's a, I, remember, I always loved that scene as a kid and I got excited every time they landed in the tree, but here, like with the long vine kind of limbs, like those are, that's a, it's a thick tree swinging at him and like it hits Harry and he goes, it doesn't, he, he goes flying it's like, man, his ribs are crushed right now. <laughs> but like physics stops being a thing in the scene. And like, I don't know, the, the way Hermione kind of rides around on, on one of the limbs, it's like this, I, I love him and I defend him, but this feels like one of the, the moments in The Hobbit that I could do without, where it's like, it's just too floaty and silly. And <laughs> you went there. <laughs> yes, I did. It feels like it's just kind of this weightless action. Like I'm, I might as well be running on dwarf heads. I don't know. It's, I, and you know, whenever it, it flings them and he, he, or she, she lets go of Harry at just the right angle where he like, he perfectly fits and slides down this, this little, I don't know, it's, it's a bit too, too much too out there for me. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the physics of that sequence don't match the very grounded physics of the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely agree there. Uh, 
was, you said there were some other scenes? Oh, the other thing that I love, because they're just not really a part of the film, I love the Weasley parents so much. And the fact that Arthur really is treating Harry like, and I was like, I, you should know this, you know. I know you, you've proven yourself. This is something that I want you to know. Please take care of yourself. And there's a moment with Molly Weasley that I just think is the most motherly moment ever. It's she, she first sees Harry and, you know, she knows his situation. She knows where he comes from. So she immediately becomes a mother too. And it's like, oh, so you've got everything packed. You've got your books, right? All of them. They're all like, it's just, it's that kind of last check before they send you off to school moment. And it's so kind yeah, uh, I love them. Yeah. Uh, th- th- speaking of that scene with uh, Arthur Weasley, really, really good scene. It's all just one take. Um, it brings me to one of my favorite transitions, which is when after Loop, after not Lupin, uh, after uh, Arthur Weasley tells Harry about, you know, what I want you to promise me that you won't go looking for Sirius Black. And then we have a close up on Harry's like, why would I go looking for someone who wants to kill me? And then we smash cut to, uh, to, um, to scabbers as uh, <laughs> as Molly Weasley is carrying him through the crowds, like it's a little like you know the threat, uh, describing the threat, then revealing to us the actual threat. But you know, since we if we don't know, we don't know. But it's very very clever filmmaking. Also, speaking of that scene, the wanted poster for Sirius is like immediately iconic. It's so <laughs> cool. I love the rabbit screaming. All right, so moving into uh, the score, uh, we talked about it a bit previously. Um, it, it's really good. It, it definitely it feels so different from the previous films, but you know it's a match for the film it's in, so that's perfect. I think the big difference is it, it does it doesn't it doesn't have a lot of, like the signature you know John Williams thing like we have you know, the big sweeping brass that he loves to have. Um, it, it's it's more stripped back a, a couple times he even uses like a like a really pared down like medieval uh orchestra which is like a handful of kind of weird instruments oh he's got that harpsichord in there and a harpsichord always makes things better absolutely um so there's a couple ones i don't imagine you know aunt marge's waltz like it starts off more like a traditional waltz, then it just gets wilder and wilder as everything breaks down uh the night bus which is just insane jazz it's so much fun it's it's just untamed yeah i wrote, I wrote down in the in the uh, in the notes that's like if you had a jazz band made up of the looney tunes characters <laughs> it's just like imagine that that's pretty close to what you're going to get here um double trouble i just i love that chorus so much it's so <laughs> there's, there's 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 toads there's like there's toads in there uh and and then that that theme is used throughout the rest of the film. Um, Buckbeak's Buckbeak's flight. You start off with the you know, the wild jungle drums, and then sweep into this soaring flight theme. Um, when John Williams goes magic, it's it's unlike anything else. Just this this soaring kind of. Uh. Mm-hmm. I guess there's a whole like genre of soundtrack uh, thing that are just like you know, flight themes. Like I, there's several. I think you have like a, you know How to Train a Dragon or Superman. Like. I love when a, a, a composer just goes wild. Like they're flying, so I'm just gonna make this heavenly music, and it's beautiful. I pretty much always love it. Then my favorite track of this, of the score, the my favorite theme, one of my favorite themes of the series is "A Window to the Past," and this is played pretty much any time we're we're dealing with, you know, discussions or memories of Harry's parents, um, and it is devastating. It's this 
it starts off with this really heartbreaking recorder flute um and then it kind of builds into you know we, we, we get many different versions but that the theme itself is incredible but particularly the recorder version it's just you well, you want to break down crying it's one of those themes like it's happy and it's sad and it's it's memories and loss and you're remembering this and just the feeling of a beautiful thing that is gone forever and it, 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 not a full-on you... lament like there's a there's no yeah there's hope kind it's of a celebration but it's also it. sad <laughs> yeah it's I put like this is this is the the kind of theme that fantasy films need for credibility. Like this is the theory is like this is this is where our heart and soul is like it because it, it's got all these emotions, but it's wrapped up in this incredible fantasy sound. Uh, it's also like it, it's like the the Rohan theme where it's you it's got such a real sense of history to it of there this theme is running through events that have played out yeah it's so it's 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 memory and like that and i i didn't mention it but i love how this is played through the patronus music like the patronus they have there's that kind of angelic choir but at the same time through the patronus music we're underneath it memories of the past is playing it is so thematically powerful because like yes it's literally the memories of the past is powering the patronus and it's, uh, it's so meaningful and i'm gonna cry uh. <laughs> It's good. Um, one other one that I do want to note as well is Portrait Gallery. Like it's got, it's it's got a very like Legend of Zelda, fun zany fantasy sound to it. Uh, it's not super long, but when it plays, especially listening to it in isolation, you're like this is this is a this is a choice, and I'm really into it. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's a uh, the uh, Quidditch, the third year. This is where the uh, the Star Wars really comes yeah. in. Yeah. Quidditch in Chamber of Secrets straight up sounds like the Attack of the uh, Attack of the Clones chase scene, like through oh, Coruscant. Really? Like there are moments where it's like that you you did the it's the melody, <laughs> like even the, 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 this finale is the, is the one I mentioned before that kind of that combines the Patronus and uh, Memories of the Past theme, and then finally the, the last one is that Mischief Manage, which is the end credits music, but it's just a suite of all the different themes, and it's it's beautiful. All right, so moving into our star rating and ranking of the series, I'll be using a five-star 10-point system, so 2.5 is completely average, neither positive nor negative. Uh, you know, three stars and above is positive, two stars and below is in the negative. Uh, what do you give this film out of five stars, James? Uh, so I go four and a half out of five. We, we kind of gone over a, a few things. I also, not to try to keep sneaking in last-minute thoughts, I don't like the <laughs> hairy even if it was by accident, enlarged his aunt and then just walked off and didn't give it a second thought. Like, I get that he's very angry in the moment, but whenever Vernon's like, bring her back, and he's like, she got what she deserved. I'm like, whoa, Harry, he's up. It's true, though. Yeah, she's he's the worst. She's absolutely horrible, but it just, it feels very uncharacteristic of Harry, even at his most angry to be like, ha, oh, well. Like, it points out that she's still just flying around, which is a hilarious visual. But it's the, 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 the cry way off in the distance. Yeah. But so like there's it's it's really I mean, it, there, there are these different things like the Whomping Willow, the feeling mildly rushed. Not one of these things is a glaring problem, but it's it's just enough issues when taken together. I'm like, ah, four and a half. But like you're a very, very strong four and a half. 
Oh, and, and ranking it. I mean, it's, there's there's only we have not reached room for disagreement ranking yet. It, it is Azkaban, Chamber of Secrets, Sorcerer Stone. It's just getting better. That trend's going to continue, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I also give it four and a half out of five. There have been several viewings where I have given it full five stars. It, it's, it, as you said, it is right there on the edge, kind of depending on how. Like I, and I, I'm not even sure, like, if I watch it again and not and not having to take notes and not having to pay as close attention, like, it's po- fully possible for it to go up to, you know, to a five stars again. It's happened before. Yeah, my, and my rating is the same as yours. Prisoner of Azkaban, Chamber of Secrets, Sorcerer's Stone. All right, so moving into the box office, uh, it earned $249 million domestically and $546 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $795 million on its $130 million budget. And when you add on a couple of re-releases, it now stands at $597 million. Uh, it stands at number eight in the series domestically, only making more than the two Fantastic Beasts films. But however, worldwide, it's underneath uh, the the other seven Harry Potter films and the first Fantastic Beasts film. Uh, however, it is a massively profitable movie. You know, it made roughly eight hundred million. Um, so it's it's a little bit so it's a just under a hundred million dollar drop from Chamber of Secrets, which had its own drop from Sorcerer's Stone. I I don't. It's, it's, that's an interesting question of like how much you can read in reception to it. Like it, it was, it got glowing reviews from critics. However, there's, there's a more mixed reception from fans. Like did, did that, did that cause like it to not make that extra hundred million or to continue an upward trend? I don't know, but any way you look at it, massive success. However, it is at the bottom of the series. Yeah. And, and I do think there is, I don't know, there's, something there to note you know the fact that of eight films and it's it's early on but there's still two before of eight films it is at the bottom you know uh filthy casuals don't deserve their art tours yeah I, like if i had to guess a reason maybe like some of the book fans like the people who go and see these movies like five times maybe a couple of them didn't go you know go for rewatches or something but still everyone saw this movie and a lot of people saw it twice like there's no denying that so as far as the the, the the 2004 box office, it's the second highest grossing film of that year underneath Trek 2, but it beat out uh, Spider-Man 2 worldwide, which stands at number three, which is just crazy. Domestically, however, it stands at number six underneath Trek 2, Spider-Man 2, The Passion of the Christ, Meet the Fockers, which I don't understand. What? <laughs> and uh, The Incredibles. Uh, and I think, I think if there is any legitimacy to that, to the, uh, the question of the reception affecting the marketing. I think it's here where usually with a less well-received installment in the series, it happens first domestically. And then that kind of that, that discontent t- um, goes out worldwide, like in later installments is so like that being at number six, uh, you know, it's at number two worldwide and then number six domestically. I think that's probably where you can k- have some guesses as to maybe a little bit of discontentment in the, in the fandom. So, man, what a year for incredible genre sequels between that and Spider-Man 2. Shrek 2, man. Hey, hey Shrek 2 is pretty fun. It's a good movie. And, and so, yeah, despite being the lowest grossing film in the original series, uh, critically, it's a very different story. It stands at 90% on Rotten Tomatoes and 86 on Metacritic, um, beating out both of the first two films by a good bit. Um, and it sets... It sets a, a high for the series critically that would only be broken by the final film, Deathly Hallows Part 2. And, and then when you go to audience ratings, uh, it's also very high. I, it even, it'll even beat out um, 
Deathly Hallows Part Two on certain audience ranking sites. Like I, I went went through and co- compared like Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, IMDb, Letterbox. It's it's really high across all of those. I think the the really important one to note is Letterboxd, um, because that I think that is the one that's gonna be most indicative of the like the, the the film you know the film buff nerds in a file community, and what's notable there is it's the only uh, film in the series to average over four stars um, on Letterboxd. Like there are stone cold masterpieces that are under four stars as far as the average rating from all the viewers. Like if you get over four stars, everyone loves you unequivocally. Yeah. Um, and this is the only one in the series to get there, um, which definitely says something. As far as awards, it, it earned uh, two Oscar nominations. John Williams was nominated uh, for Best Original Score, but he lost to Finding Neverland. And it was also nominated for Best Visual Effects, uh, but lost to Spider-Man 2. So as for the film's legacy, I don't feel like this movie's legacy is really in danger. Like it's, we talked about other films where, it, you know, even whenever, even some of the ones where it's like, it's received and considered even the best. In, in a franchise that gets forgotten, it's like, well, you're the best of something that nobody really thinks much about anyways. <laughs> um, but it feels like, I don't know, Ask, Prisoner of Azkaban is here to stay. Uh, and, and even with the mild disconnect between critics and fans, because w- with critics, it feels like a surefire. You, yeah, it, it's the best, mm-hmm. uh, considering all of these different sources. With fans, there are the people, you got book fans to consider. We don't like talking about book peers because they're the worst. <laughs> uh, there, if there's still some people who are like, there's still some people who are like, oh yeah, it's tied for this one. Or it's like, oh, it's my third favorite. I love it. Like Even whenever it's not number one, aside from the odd person here and there, it's pretty high. It's, it's, it's agreed to be a great movie all around. And it's kind of silently acknowledged or not so silently in the case of a lot of people as the best film. And you notice that like when look at all the, 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 uh, the uh, feedback we got at the beginning of the episode, every single person who said it's not my favorite also had to acknowledge that is accepted as the favorite. Like anyone who said, who had anything negative to say about it also kind of had to caveat that with, I know everyone else loves it. Like <laughs> the, the, the knowledge is so ingrained in pop culture that Prisoner of Azkaban is the best. But I think it is worth mentioning, as loath as we are to mention the book Pierce, that there, there is a sizable contingent that does not like this movie. Um, uh, big, the big reasons we mentioned a couple of them, you know, the, the radical shift in tone, like book purists, they want to see the book. Any change is unacceptable. And the, you know, the first two films are very much the book translated to screen. Quaron came and he gave a true adaptation. Uh, and some people don't appreciate that. You know, there, there are... There are some gripes of varying degrees of legitimacy um things like harry harry using magic at the dursleys in the beginning like where he's practicing the loomis maxima spell uh the, the kids wearing muggle clothing um the big one i hear even among fans of the movie is is that people don't like how they they cut out pretty much the entire backstory of the marauders that's a yeah you know, that, that is a legitimate criticism, I think. Yeah, you have you know, Harry's dad, Sirius, Lupin, and Pettigrew, their days in school, creating the Marauders map, their friendship that you know that ultimately led to you know Peter Pettigrew's betrayal that was blamed on uh, Sirius. Like that that that's the big thing a lot of people criticize. And in in the book, like we're in that shriek, you know, the the scene I talked about that's all just constant energy. In the book, they stop and Lupin tells 
like a chapter long story about, you know, his past and his past with Harry's parents and, you know, and Sirius and all that. And that wouldn't work at all in a film. I think most of the, for the most part, they made the right choice. However, I think at some point in the film, we needed an acknowledgement that Harry's father was prongs on, and that he was an animagus and he turned into a deer when he was, when he turned into an animal. And because that, and that becomes thematically important because in the film, they show that Harry's, Harry's uh, Patronus is a stag. And so like, he's literally fighting off the Dementors with the memory of his father. And I feel like that, that is a connection that should have been made. And like the scene's already incredible and powerful as it is, but like, imagine how much more powerful it would be if the film had directly referenced like that. That's, that's part of his father in him. And and it's not just information. It's so thematically on point. Yeah. And you know, like watching this after I read the book, I didn't really think about the fact that they don't name them. I'm like, Oh yeah, we know, you know, Mooney and Wormtail. Like we, we know all this. And then you think about it. I'm like, wait, the movie really never said that. Cause like, as I see the stack, I'm like, Oh, I know what that means. And why this is a great moment. But yeah, it's, it's weird. It's weird that there's not even a mention. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, Book, you know, book purist, whatever, go away. <laughs> Leave us alone. This is cinema. <laughs> um, yeah, like, they're, they're a definite minority, but I think there are a loud enough voice that I, I've heard them. No, yeah, I, I've definitely heard them over the years here and there. And they're still, they're, they're still around if you're in Harry Potter groups, which why would you be? Uh, <laughs> I think as far as, you know, it's, it's legacy within the series, with the films, like I think it, it, it freed up the series to be more interesting and experimental. Um, Sometimes that backfired with a certain unnamed fourth film. Uh, but on the whole, I think it particularly with da- you could definitely feel a lot of David Yates taking. I feel like he, he looked at of all the previous films. He looked at this one mainly for his inspiration. You could yeah. definitely feel a lot of this film's DNA going forward. Also, I think in larger YA films, um, I, I, I can't say this for certain because I haven't watched all the YA films pre 2005 or, you know, but I feel like this film's visual aesthetic kind of became the go-to for a lot of kind of fantasy YA type books. And it, like that, that very, the very kind of, you know, the, the, the strong gray color grading, the blue filters, all of that, like that kind of look think I'm thinking like the, the first twilight film, which is like yeah. really weird looking, but I, I can't say for certain, but I feel like that kind of came out of this film and the aesthetic is set, that kind of set an aesthetic, not only for the Harry Potter films, but for a lot of different YA films going forward for better. And for, in some cases, you know, for worse, but I, 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 I don't like when people blame a film that did it right for a later film that did it wrong. It's, it's, it's weird how people do that sometimes. Unfair. And going back to kind of the, the, the film fan reaction to this, this is, there are a lot of franchise films and genre films that, people, real cinephiles, um, you know, who retweet whatever Scorsese says about uh, Marvel films, but those types of people, they'll, they will, there's genre films and franchise films that they will like and enjoy, but it's really rare to come all across one that they truly respect as hashtag cinema, like, you know, your, your Mad Max Fury Road type movies. Um, however, I, th- I think this is one that is like, this is real filmmaking. You know, if I was a yeah. we, we, you got we Fury could... Road, Prisoner of Azkaban, Prisoner of Azkaban, 
Terminator 2, Spider-Man 2. Empire Strikes Back. Empire Strikes uh, Back. Yeah, there's not a lot. And, uh, like, it, it's a very exclusive club. And and, and like the, and you could tell uh, like, like the amount of just like digital ink, like all the articles, like why is this the best? Like this is the best film? Why is it the best? Like what did Quran bring to it? Like there's so many video essays on YouTube, people like just diving into every aspect of it, you know, the, the adaptation, the way the story is told, this, the cinematography in particular gets a lot of a, uh, you know, dissection, the music, like, like even, even like the, the most stringent, you know, cinephile nerd, like, like gives this film a level of respect that none of the other films in the series quite reach even if they're like the first film and the last one they're all beloved but like this one is the we allow you we 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 confer upon you the rank of cinema kind of thing this this is a real movie james and we're allowed to like it so that means Heck yeah we are i love it <laughs> Uh, I think that, that, that's a good place to wrap this up. Um, so that was our review of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd like to ask you to please, uh, again, give us a rating and review on iTunes. If you, if you want to like us on Facebook, you can find us there at Franchise Fatigue Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at FranchisedPod. And you can find all our other episodes at FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. Also, we are part of the Pop Americana uh, content network. There's a lot of other cool shows there. Uh, you can find all of that at popamericana.wixsite.com slash popamericana. And where can people follow you, James? You can find me over on Letterboxd, and there is JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. And you can also find both of us as admins over on the Outer Rim, a Star Wars group on Facebook. Uh, we are a group dedicated to talking about Star Wars positively and constructively, and we've got a lot to be positive and happy and excited about. So yeah, if you love Star Wars and you want to talk about it, head on over there. And I'm also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. You can find me on uh, Instagram as Gabe the Great Green, and I have a YouTube channel called Greenery01, where I put out these um, movie-based music videos and trailer mashups. I'm getting really close to finishing my latest one. And uh, so next week, uh, it's Goblet of Fire. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think we might lose some listeners on this one because I, I know a lot of people who inexplicably like this movie despite being very wrong uh, and obviously terrible people for doing so. But <laughs> um, so, yeah, if you really love this movie, you might want to skip next episode or uh, we could tell you why, why you're wrong. <laughs> and if you don't like it, this may be a very cathartic experience for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so we're talking about Goblet of Fire next week. Uh, it's going to be fun. <laughs> you look I'm looking at, well, forward to it. To it's going to be fun for us. It's going to be pure misery if you like the movie. And I apologize in advance. Yeah. So until next week, we will see you in the sequel. You foul, loathsome, evil little cockroach. <laughs>